The late Walter L. Smith, an author and education advocate, first opened his library and museum in West Tampa as a safe place for children to study away from drugs and violence. But the building stopped operating during the pandemic, and Smith's death last year prolonged the closure. WUSF's Jessica Mazaros reports Smith's son is reopening the facility this weekend. Walter L. Smith was once the provost at Hillsborough Community College and later became the seventh president of Florida A&M University. He died on Thanksgiving Day of congestive heart failure at the age of 86. His son, Walter L. Smith II, is honoring his father's legacy by revamping the space and programs offered at his library and museum, which consists of a couple small houses at the corner of Albany Avenue and Cypress Street. He created an atmosphere that there would not have to be excuses. He created an atmosphere where their lives would be better. Guidance counseling will be available to help young people transition from middle school to high school and high school to college. Jessica Mazaros, WUSF 89.7 News. to a story that we've been following here. Students at Lyman Moore and Lincoln Middle Schools in Portland have been protesting racial discrimination from teachers and peers. Well, now the superintendent is out with a response. WMTW News 8's Nort Hogan spoke with students about their concerns. Last month, students at middle schools in Portland protested racial discrimination. Last night, the superintendent of schools released new data that supports those claims. After the student protests, the school board conducted a survey of Portland schools to investigate students' concerns. They found that 33% of middle schoolers said that they felt unsafe at school. Sometimes we don't feel safe in the school because there's just been a lot of uh, racism and just a lot of bullies here lately. They like go These students say that they're still facing discrimination from their peers even after their protests and promises from administrators that they would make changes. Things are not getting better. Things are staying the same. People are still saying racial slurs. The study also looked at disciplinary action, finding that 47% of middle schoolers who were suspended during this past school year are black, even though they account for just 30% of the student body. But that disparity isn't necessarily what students are focused on. They want curriculum changes. People make fun of slavery, and they don't know what um, our ancestors had to go through. And it's like, it's not fair that they're not teaching that in classes. But that doesn't mean that... One parent and former teacher says that the report is hyper-focused on racism while missing a broader issue. Well, I think that the first thing we need to be doing is actually supporting our teachers and making sure that we're properly staffed in all of our buildings. And in the absence of that, it makes it very hard to uh, really manage the schools and focus on keeping all of the kids focused and safe. Members of the school board say they're working on new solutions to fix these issues in Portland schools. In Portland, Nora Hogan, WMTW News. See, so if they come to me, well, Fuller, if you really don't want to deal with racism and be happy and get all kind of benefits, which you mentioned benefits, yes, and all like that, and go on and live your life, mm-hmm. then, Fuller, you've got to become a homosexual. And then I say no, because that's a part of their plot. Mm-hmm. That's not a part of mine. Mm. You know, no, I'm not I'm not doing that, you know. Yeah, I know about the benefits that go with that. I've seen it. Mm. But are they really benefits? 
you know, what what does it, and I have this written in some of my notes, mm-hmm. what does it matter to gain the whole world and have to give up your gender? There will be one less parade returning to Boston streets this summer. The colorful, joyous Pride Parade is no more. Organized by the Boston Pride Group, the parade was the highlight of June's Pride Month and a celebration of LGBTQ folks from Boston and the region. What began as a public political statement raising awareness about gay and trans issues became better known as an event characterized by boisterous street merrymaking sponsored by corporate cash. The Pride Parade was canceled in 2020, a victim of the pandemic, but last year it was axed for good because of simmering intra-community tensions. Tensions that eventually boiled over, splintering the local lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer community in a biblical-sized dispute. During the last several years, the 50-year-old Boston Pride Group was at odds with the multiple other smaller LGBTQ organizations and community groups. Public flare-ups increased. In 2015, Black Lives Matter protesters demonstrated at the annual Pride Parade demanding the mostly white leadership expand the participation of people of color. The online magazine Quillette cites the formal statement of activist ultimatums, part of which read, We demand a Pride Board as diverse as our community and not solely comprised of wealthy white capitalist gays and lesbians. It got worse after the murder of George Floyd. Most of Boston Pride's volunteer staff resigned after claiming the formal statement, shaped by Black Pride members and released by the organization, was weakened without their permission. Quillette details specific revisions. One replaced the words police violence with violence committed by some members of the law enforcement community. And the line, oppressions are interlocked, no one is free until we are all free, hashtag Black Lives Matter, was replaced with, no one is free until we are all free, we are hashtag Boston Pride, hashtag Wicked Proud. The oft-repeated Pride goeth before the fall is actually a shortened version of the original verse from Proverbs 16:18, which explains the lead-up to a fall from grace and this particular fall from grace. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There was apparently plenty of haughty spirit infiltrating the Boston Pride group. The organization officially dissolved last year, having failed to listen to the voices of non-white, gay, and trans people, especially ironic for an organization dedicated to inclusion. Trey Andre Valentine, the executive director of the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition, told GBH News, The previous Pride events didn't really feel, for a lot of trans people, for a lot of people of color, like it was for us. In the absence of the old Boston Pride Parade, several community groups this month are hosting a variety of Pride events, including parades, throughout the region. This time, the formerly marginalized LGBTQ groups will be integral to leadership and participation. That will be essential in building the next chapter of the local Pride movement. Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local NPR. 
Ryanair, Europe's biggest airline by passenger numbers, is making South Africans take a general knowledge test in the Afrikaans language before they're allowed to board flights in Europe. According to the airline, it's because of the high numbers of fraudulent South African passports. Yet the country has 11 official languages and Afrikaans isn't spoken by everyone. Rob Young asked South African travel journalist Jared Rushenberg what he made of Ryanair's policy. I think the word absurd is certainly what most South Africans have felt. In fact, many of us, when I first read the headline, I thought, is it actually April the 1st? Is this an April Fool's joke? Because it just seemed unbelievable. And the British High Commissioner and even the Irish government have responded and said that this is not a requirement on their behalf. It's Essentially, it's Ryanair trying to prove that passengers have the correct documentation for their destination. And... I think many of us are used to doing this and providing documentation, but of course the bigger issue is around how they've done this and done it in one of South Africa's, as you said, 11 languages. Have you seen this test in Afrikaans and would you feel confident you'd be able to complete it and therefore be allowed on board? I have looked through the test and interestingly I did it myself and I knew the answers to most of the questions. However, I am not an Afrikaans speaker. Although I studied it at school and consider myself fairly educated with one or two degrees, there were still several words in the test that I would not have understood what they were asking. So most South Africans would be able to answer almost all the questions. It's general geography questions about who's the president, what is the capital city, which side of the road do we drive on? So most people would get the answers. However, the challenge would be around understanding it. And how have people more widely in South Africa reacted to this, particularly those who don't speak Afrikaans? Of course, it's been a mix of disbelief going, is this actually happening? I mean, we have seen some bizarre things in in the world in the last one or two years, but this is something that have made people go, what on earth is going on? So there's been disbelief and it is, it is transposed into anger for many people because in South Africa, we have a very difficult past when it comes to languages. And for many people would associate Afrikaans with a previous government regime and the Afrikaans Language Board and various other bodies are really trying to represent Afrikaans in a new light and portrayed as a friendly language, but this will be a deeply triggering thing for many South Africans to be uh, told that they need to complete this in a language that they cannot do. When you say the previous government, you're talking about it was the language of apartheid. Yes, the language of apartheid. For example, many people will recall in 1976 we had what was called the Sweater Uprising, where the government made a sweeping decision to institute Afrikaans as a medium language for all schools across the country. And that would be in rural contexts where, particularly for South African of colour who'd never spoken the language, teachers who hadn't. And that led to massive revolts around the country. And so that's why there is a bit of a deeper triggering element for this in South Africa. Jared Rottenberg. And the ones that I add to it, stop using and selling drugs to one another. See, we're getting ready to be put in a real trap with this legalization of marijuana. So everybody, every black person can be unemployed and then they can sit in their corner and get high on marijuana with whatever they decide to put in it. 
and people won't be asking for jobs and being determined that they're going to get jobs and going to get an education. No, everybody can start getting high on marijuana because somebody said it's medicinal and it's legal. What about? So we better beware. Now, a researcher at the University of Washington thinks he has an answer, psilocybin. That's the compound that puts the magic in magic mushrooms. From member station KUOW in Seattle, reporter Eilish O'Neill has the story. Healthcare workers haven't had a chance to process the trauma and grief of the past few years. That's according to Tony Bach, an oncologist at the University of Washington. Doctors and nurses just kind of turn themselves off. And it turns out when you do that, and you do it enough, you start to feel numb, and then you can't stop feeling numb. You feel like a zombie. Many healthcare workers are in the clinical range for depression, anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder. In the long term, it can mean that you are just really disconnected from everything. One ongoing national survey asks healthcare workers if they're having thoughts of self-harm or that life is not worth living. One out of every four says yes. Bach thinks psilocybin could help. So he launched a study to give it to burned-out healthcare workers. One of the things that psilocybin does, it allows you to just feel those feelings because it kind of releases that top-down control that your brain can have on your emotions. Which can help with the numbness and depression. You realize you can feel all of them and it actually won't destroy you. Bach's study is small, only 30 people, but he hopes the effects will be large. Only half of the participants will get psilocybin during the study. The other half will get a placebo. But people generally know if they've taken a psychedelic. Bach says he got the idea for this study because of previous research, looking at psilocybin to treat the anxiety and depression that can follow a cancer diagnosis. One of the people who tried psilocybin for that study was Bach's patient, Carrie Pappas. I have a thing for trees. I met Pappas in a drippy, forested park north of Seattle. I just walk and walk and walk through the trees. Pappas is a retired nurse practitioner. She was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2013. It kind of started taking over my life. At the time, Pappas was living in Texas, but her family wanted to move across the country to the Seattle area. I couldn't move forward because this was a devastating diagnosis that I may not come out of. Pappas says she couldn't act. She felt stuck. So she enrolled in a study that treated her fear of death with psilocybin. She had a few psychotherapy sessions to prepare. And then when she took the drug, two therapists sat and talked with her to guide her experience. During her trip, she describes finding herself in an ancient environment where men with pickaxes were chopping up huge boulders. And then all of a sudden, out of the rocks came a jewel. And it represented myself. And in the meantime, I'm getting a loud, booming voice, I'll call it. It was saying right here, right now, over and over and over and over again. Pappas says that experience helped unstick her and teach her to live in the moment instead of fearing her death. She was able to make that cross-country move with her family. Researchers warn that just taking psychedelics on your own doesn't solve depression. It's only been shown to help in conjunction with therapy. They're still trying to figure out exactly how it works. But, well, if it works, then it works, you know? Fred Baird is a psychiatry professor and psychedelics researcher at Johns Hopkins University. 
He says psilocybin can feel like the next big thing in mental health care, but it's only been rigorously tested on a few hundred people. What is pushing psychedelics forward despite those numbers are, are really the enormous effect sizes, especially in the treatment of mood disorders such as major depressive disorder. Barrett says those effects seem to endure for months or even years after the treatment. It's not necessarily all the wild and confusing things that can occur during a psychedelic experience that lead to therapeutic outcomes, but personal insights that are gained in that environment. And those insights, Barrett says, are essentially what end up being the medicine. For NPR News, I'm Alicia O'Neill in Seattle. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on Black Americans from colonial times to the present. You may have encountered this device at the hospital or even bought one for your home during the pandemic. A pulse oximeter is a fingertip clip that measures how much oxygen is in your blood, something that doctors need to know in order to treat COVID-19. But a study released last week shows how inaccurate measurements by the devices may have led to delays when treating people of color for COVID-19. Dr. Ashraf Fauzi is an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University and co-author of the study, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you, Aisha. Thanks for having me. Now, there has been knowledge for some time that pulse oximeters do not provide very accurate measurements for those with darker skin. I will say I did not necessarily know that. But, but tell us what you found in this study. So in our study, there were two parts. The first part, we looked at a large group of patients with COVID-19 and found that pulse oximeters overestimated the oxygen level in Black and Hispanic and Asian patients compared with white patients. This portion of the study replicates prior findings from a few other studies, and replication is very important in scientific research. The second part of the study, we tried to answer a new question. Did the inaccuracy of pulse oximeters potentially change how patients were cared for? So in COVID, blood oxygen levels are used to determine whether a patient has severe COVID requiring treatment. Specifically, a blood oxygen level of 94% or less qualifies a patient for certain treatments, specifically dexamethasone, which is a steroid, and remdesivir, which is an antiviral medication. So what we found was that people of color, specifically Black and Hispanic patients, were 29% and 23% less likely than white patients to have severe COVID identified, which means that the recognition of the need for medication was potentially delayed. Do we know why um, pulse oximeters don't work as well on darker skin? Well, the assumption is that it is darker skin, but there aren't really any studies that really show this. But that's the leading assumption. So at the start of the pandemic, you know, I started hearing these things about, okay, you need to get a pulse oximeter. I sent a pulse oximeter to my aunt when she got sick. My sister in my house, when my husband got COVID, I got the pulse oximeter. Like, was I wrong to be using it that way as, and and I am black, you know, people probably know that, but I'm a black woman. My family is black. Should we not do that? Use them at home like that? Well, pulse oximetry is the fifth vital sign. So other vital sign examples, for instance, are temperature and blood pressure. So knowing the oxygen level in your blood is extremely important. 
So it certainly wasn't wrong to get them and use them. It's just important to know that they may not be 100% accurate. So if things don't necessarily line up, if the way you're feeling doesn't line up with the way with what the pulse oximeter is telling you, then that might be a good reason to seek medical care and not just solely rely on the pulse oximeter reading. I wanted to go back to your research and, and, and ask about how we know that Black communities and communities of color have had some of the worst outcomes in terms of death and hospitalization during the pandemic. Does your research findings add any data to whether this may have played a role in those worst outcomes or have been one of the factors? It may certainly be one piece of the puzzle. So we weren't able to look at uh, outcomes like whether there's a higher death rate, more disability, longer hospitalizations in our study, unfortunately. But certainly other studies have shown that racial and ethnic minorities have had worse outcomes with COVID. And treatment is definitely one of the important things that help reduce the death rate and lead to better outcomes. So the fact that we are showing that there's a potential delay in treatment among those patients may be a piece of the puzzle as to why uh, Black and Hispanic patients were doing worse at the beginning of the pandemic. What do you think needs to happen to address this issue? Does there need to be more education about this? More education is definitely important for the time being, but ultimately there needs to be a more permanent fix. With evidence mounting that the device is not equally accurate among all races, hopefully this is the catalyst for the medical community to re-engineer the pulse oximeters so they work more equitably for all patients. Dr. Ashraf Fauzi is an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Aisha. Thank you for having me. Oh, hey, Jack. Yeah. Here. Take this. It's cold as hell out these mornings, and you know what the man said? No. The coldest winter I ever spent was the summer I spent in San Francisco. Hmm. In San Francisco, voters supported a multi-million dollar-funded effort to recall progressive prosecutor Chesa Boudin as district attorney of San Francisco. Boudin aimed to reform the criminal justice system, but faced mounting attacks by the real estate industry. Boudin told supporters Tuesday night he would not stop fighting for restorative justice. This recall started, my wife Valerie said to me, I know we're going to win. And she's right. She's always right. And the reason I knew and I know today that she was right is because this was never about one vote count. It was never about one election night party. It was never about specifically which person gets to be in the office of the district attorney. This is a movement, not a moment in history. I want to be very clear about what happened tonight. The right-wing billionaires outspent us three to one. They exploited an environment in which people are appropriately upset. And they created an electoral dynamic where we were literally shadow boxing. Voters were not asked to choose between criminal justice reform and something else. They were given an opportunity to voice their frustration and their outrage, and they took that opportunity. 
But for more, we go to San Francisco to speak with Lara Bazelon, professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, where she's director of the school's criminal and juvenile justice and racial justice law clinics. She's also chair of San Francisco D.A. Chesa Boudin's Innocence Commission, which she wrote about in a San Francisco Chronicle piece headlined, My Team Set an Innocent Man Free Under Chesa Boudin's Guidance, Let Us Keep Working. Well, can you talk, Professor Bazelon, about what happened last night, about the whole recall effort that succeeded um, in um, ousting Chesa Boudin as the DA of San Francisco? Yes, and good morning, Amy. I think what happened was a perfect storm, because you had, as Chase has said in his concession speech, millions of dollars, I think over $7 million being poured into the effort to recall him. And I think that money bought a lot of ads and messaging around this idea that everything that San Franciscans are feeling about being unsafe, about rising burglary and auto crimes had to do with Chase Boudin. And that if they could just sort of vent their frustrations and recall him, they were going to wake up the next day magically with some kind of a, a better outcome. And I think that that messaging is false and that San Franciscans are going to be pretty disappointed to find out that they're waking up today with the same mayor, the same grossly incompetent police department that has a 9% clearance rate, and really messengers who are telling them that returning to tough on crime policies are going to be the answer to the myriad of problems the city faces, many of which are not even in the purview of the district attorney's office. And Professor Bassalon, this whole issue of getting tougher on crime, uh, the perception of increases in crime, what are the actual statistics, crime statistics in, in terms of, uh, of San Francisco in recent years? And, and also, my understanding is that there's been a sharp drop in the number of arrests that the police uh, have been, uh, uh, have been uh, conducting in recent years. I'll take the last part of that question first. That's absolutely correct. So the clearance rate, which means the arrests that they're able to bring to the DA's office for prosecution, has dropped to below 9% for most crimes. And it's at about 1% for auto burglaries, which perhaps is the most triggering issue for San Franciscans. So, of course, what that means is that if I were to go out and commit one of these crimes, and I don't intend to, I have somewhere between a 91 and a 99% chance of not even being arrested. And of course, the DA can't prosecute people who the police don't arrest. And I feel like if we were going to have an honest conversation about crime, the conversation would stop right there. And the buck would stop with the mayor, who, of course, appointed the police chief. But broadly speaking, in terms of is crime rising in San Francisco, it's really a mixed bag. Some crimes have dropped. Other crimes have risen, but not at all in the statistically exponential way that we've seen in cities, for example, like Sacramento, which has had a huge spike in murders and violent crimes. Ours has been relatively small. It's less about what the actual statistics say than about how people feel. And that is what I continued to hear in the weeks leading up to the recall is friends and neighbors and the pediatrician, whoever, telling me I've been a victim of a crime or I know somebody who had their car broken into and I don't feel safe. And that, I think, was the message and the, that, that really the recall supporters were able to capitalize on. That was the thing that resounded and resonated with voters because that's how they've been feeling. And so the problem is that statistics are really important. But at the same time, when you tell someone 
you don't have a reason to be that worried because property crime is only up by 1%. That's not going to be a message that's going to resonate with someone who just had their car broken into. And we've mentioned the role of the real estate industry, but what about the police themselves? Weren't they uh, essentially uh, sworn enemies of Chase Boudin? And uh, to what degree did the police unions play a role in these elections? The police unions played a huge role. I want to back up for a second because you did mention some of these special interests. One of the things that Chase Boudin did was he instituted prosecutions against wage theft, against the misclassification of workers. Those are the kinds of things that happen routinely in the tech industry. And so he made enemies with very, very deep pockets. But yes, to go back to the dysfunctionality in the police department, that has been a long-term problem. It predated Chase Boudin, and it's interesting. They you know, some of them will tell you, oh, well, there's no point in arresting because he won't prosecute, as if he wouldn't prosecute a serious violent crime or send somebody to something like diversion for a less serious crime. So it's not true, but they've also been peddling that message for for decades, really. When Kamala Harris was the DA, they routinely told people, oh, we're not going to arrest because San Francisco juries don't convict. And as for the POA, they have been a sworn enemy of Chase Boudin from the very beginning of his campaign. And in fact, towards the end of it in 2019, they dumped $700,000 into attack ads. One thing I think they did that was smart was that they stayed behind the scenes because they are detested in the city of San Francisco. And let's be clear, I mean, uh, Chase Boudin has been under pressure from the beginning because they first attempted to get enough signatures to uh, recall him before. They didn't do that, and then they've done this. Um, so the power of money right now in elections um, in California, of course, it's the case all over the country, Lara. Um, in a moment, we want to talk about Karen Bass and who she is up against, a billionaire Republican-turned-Democrat. But before we end on this issue, I wanted to ask you about the Innocence Commission uh, that Chase Boudin set up, how unusual it is, you also an expert in restorative of justice. Thank you so much for asking. This is perhaps the achievement that he is the most proud of, and I know that I am too. To sort of give you a context, we're known as a liberal city, but in the entire history of San Francisco, there had never been a collaborative exoneration of an innocent person. And what I mean by that is that traditionally, when people in San Francisco claimed to be wrongfully convicted, the DA's response was to double and triple down and insist that they were guilty and force these people to fight for years to get out. They would then turn around and sue the city and cost taxpayers millions of dollars. And when Chesa took office, there was a conviction review unit that was supposed to be evaluating these claims objectively. They had exonerated no one. So his response was to create an independent commission. There's five of us, and it is my honor to chair it. And what we do, we work pro bono, and we reinvestigate these cases from the ground up. We review thousands of pages of documents. We interview witnesses. We retain experts and listen to their opinions. And then at the end of that, we transmit our findings to the DA, and obviously, of course, at the end, it's the DA's decision. Our first case concluded in April. A man named Joaquin Syria was exonerated after spending 32 years in prison for a murder that another man committed. And this is just one of the many reforms that I think is so important and really only came about because San Franciscans had the vision and the courage to elect someone who was truly progressive. And as I said in my op-ed, I'm very worried that our work is on the chopping block and that whoever comes in, and mind you, this is someone who the mayor will appoint, who almost certainly will bring in tough-on-crime policies to try to capitalize that in the election we're having in November, will either disband us or stack us with people who really aren't interested in doing that job. And that concerns me and makes me deeply sad.
The stars at night are big and bright. Where does that happen, Ray? Deep in the heart of Texas. The fortitude of Uvalde, Texas is being tested by an unrelenting pace of visitations, funerals, and burials. Many longtime residents say the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School has shattered the town of about 16,000. It was once known for its rich, rich history and tranquil living. They say Uvalde's path to healing will be a long one, as NPR's Claudia Grisales reports. I'll see you later. Blessing. Thank you. I'll get back with you. Retired teacher Diana Bonnet is delivering vibrantly colored homemade quilts to the Children's Advocacy Center in Uvalde. We've already given out 60 quilts since this happened. The Blue Bonnet Center that counsels children facing trauma is now overwhelmed with requests. Bonnet is on a frantic mission to get the quilts to every hurting child through her program, Quilts of Grace. Bonnet was a fourth grade teacher at Robb Elementary School in the 1990s. She is now haunted by her connections to the school shooting. A little at a time, I started realizing that's my friend's granddaughter. That's another friend's grandson. That's another, and and my husband lost his cousin. The 70-year-old's family has lived here for three generations. She shares a common thread with many longtime residents still struggling to make sense of the shooting. That includes Virginia Davis, who moved here as a high schooler in the 1940s and is now the longtime archivist at the town's El Progreso Memorial Library. Looking out here and looking at all the little kids going by is so precious. And I have a lot of great-grandchildren, and you just can't imagine something like that happening to them. Today, Davis is part of a group called El Progreso that founded the library more than a century ago. It's set among Uvalde's trademark oak trees. The town was originally named for the Spanish word for those trees. The first name the founders gave to it was Encino. Its history also includes a town name change in the 1800s to honor a Spanish-born Mexican general turned governor, Juan de Ulgalde. But an English misspelling changed the name, and now it sounds as diverse as the community itself. I've heard a lot of different pronunciations. That includes Uvalde, Uvalde, and Uvalde. The pronunciations can reflect a family's background. It also ties into the town's troubled racial divide. An old railroad forced Latinos and whites to live separate lives on opposite sides of the town, and many push for change. I've been uh, very active in, in politics, just trying to get the community, the raza, motivated. That 71-year-old Eliasar Lugo, who went to Robb Elementary as a child like most Latinos of the community at the time. Lugo is one of the last surviving members of a Uvalde group who protested around the state for better educational access for the Mexican-American youth organization in the 1960s. Well, we were just showing force that we were against the way the school system was being to the Mexican-American. They dealt this uh, second-hand card. But Lugo says that protest spirit largely left the town 40 years ago. Generations that have followed after, I'd say, 1980, nobody really did anything to, to motivate the people, to see if they could change things. Uvalde began as a farming community, but now has seen a mix of industry jobs come into town, including many fast food employers offering lower-paying hourly wages. Lugo and his wife Maria have been scrambling to volunteer everywhere possible, including their Sacred Heart Catholic Church, where many of the funerals for victims have been held. 
This past week, he helped grill burgers with other retired workers to serve 700 meals to the town. But even with all that volunteering, Lugo is not hopeful the town will heal. He recently talked with a friend who asked if a parent ever gets over the loss of a child. Lugo says no. Eventually, it'll ease off, but you'll never get over it. Back outside the Children's Advocacy Center, Diana Bonnet says part of Uvalde's charm has been its feeling of safety, but that is gone now. That's what we need to get back. We need to get the safety back. And, oh, that's going to be long-term. That's what keeps Bonnet focused on her Quilts of Grace program that she hopes can play a part in the community's healing. But she worries for the next wave of trauma when the community learns exactly what went wrong to allow a shooter to take the lives of 19 children and two teachers. There's going to be another level of healing. It's, it's just going to be difficult. But Bonnet is holding out hope her town can heal, even if it takes just one quilt at a time. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Uvalde, Texas. So why don't we start out with this headline? You ready? Okay. You ready? I love these. a good week. I love Several these. weeks for police. I love these headlines. Uh, three police officers. Watch a man drown. Three Tempe police officers. Reportedly, watch a man drown at Tempe Town Lake. So I'm reading all this stuff. I'm like, wow, these cops, what did they just... Oh, geez. You know, you look at the headline and you're like... My goodness, you know what? They didn't try it. Rescue this guy. I love these headlines. We talk about this all the time. So many people just read the headlines. It's clickbait. Yeah, and then they don't actually read the story. So we need to decide right now, why did the Tempe police watch a man drown? It's funny when you say clickbait, because so many people never click on it. They just <laughs> take it and go, well, that's got to be the truth then. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if I'm these cops, uh, I probably, I'm, I'm going to let him drown too. I know that sounds awful, but let's get to the story. Here's the story. It wasn't like he was warned. No. Police say they were called about a domestic violence incident between Sean Bickings and his wife. Officers say there was no crime, but they ran his name and found out that he had warrants. So the body camera video, you see him there on the ledge, uh, basically shows him climbing over the railing. Okay, so this guy is in a domestic dispute. He's running from the police. Now his wife d- d- says, "Look, we just yell at each other and it gets loud, but we're mm-hmm. we're that's our bad habit. It, there was no violence or anything going on." So she says. So she says. Okay. But that's whatever, right? You know, it's like how many times you watch cops and you know somebody calls the police, they show up, and then the lady who calls the police attacks the police officer yep. for showing up. So so this guy decides I'm going to run away, and then I'm going to go to Tempe Town Lake and I'm going to go over the ledge. Okay. Um, so if the cops are watching this happen, what are the what are the police expected to do if this guy actually jumps in? Okay. On the left side of your screen, and then he gets into the water and starts to swim away. Okay, so you're running from me. I'm a cop. You're running from me. Yes. You go over the railing, and now you jump into the water. Mm-hmm. As a police officer, do I have to go in after you? Well, you know, it, it's... 
This is one of those interesting things, Gettys. You know, the, we touched on it last week, I think, briefly. But there was a ruling, actually, even for all the stuff we've heard about, uh, you know, Evaldi and everything. There was a ruling that came down from in the uh, federal courts, uh, D.C. several years ago that police don't actually have to run into the line of fire. They don't have to do certain things. They warned this guy. Yeah. Don't go in there. Don't do don't, it. And they you. were saying, you know, on the camera, don't do it, man. We're not saving you. If you jump in, we're not coming after you. Well, in the transcript, police say Bickings says he's drowning multiple times, begged for help. So now he's begging for help. Yes. He's run from the police. He's in the middle of the water. I think he swam, what, 40 yards out? Yeah. And now he says, I'm drowning. Okay. An officer says that they will not jump into the water. And the rest of the transcript is an argument between Bicking's wife and the officers as she asks them to save his life. His body was pulled from the lake later that day. He's dead. Yeah. Okay. Tempe Police Chief Jeff Glover called the death a tragedy, and Glover is now asking outside agencies to investigate the officer's response. Good. You can investigate it, but I'll tell you right now, this uh, this isn't Uvalde. No. This isn't the cowardly Uvalde cops. These are the Tempe police officers. And so, so what if the man, what if the cops go in and he starts fighting them in the water? Because he's running from them. So... As a kid growing up in Southern California, every year I was a junior lifeguard, right? So you're down there and you run, you jump off the end of the pier, you swim, you do all the stuff that lifeguards do. You learn about these things. Do you wear the red bathing suit? I had the red That's bathing awesome. suit, right? Right. We had the, Fantastic. I had the orange little, you know, Is that right? the whole nine yards. Let me tell you something. Pulling or trying to take people out of the water when they're drowning and panicking is so dangerous because they end up many times trying to kill you right trying to get you out right uh and then people always think two things i'm a better swimmer than i really am i could swim across that lake no problem they get out about 200 yards they find out i don't have the other 400 yards in me this guy didn't have it in him and he's wearing clothes right clothes don't make it easy how about what the police are wearing yeah gear how much gear are they wearing because they're not ready to go to go and rescue a guy. No. This is not a lake patrol team that has equipment to handle water rescue. These are street cops. Sandy Anderson, we've had him on many times, Phoenix PD. Plus, you got to think Phoenix about this, Gatos, right? Mm -hmm. This is a person who is running away from you. Right. So how do I know if you're really telling me the truth or you're not, or you want to get one of us in the water and something may happen? That's a fair question, isn't yeah. it? Well, I, I see people that are saying, oh, this is exactly what the Uvalde police No, no Are you no, kidding no. me? Uh, the kids no. did not put themselves in that situation. The, the kids didn't call them and go, we're not coming in. We're not. I told you guys we were coming in. Solve it yourself. They were not doing any of that. This stuff. guy put himself in a situation. Absolutely. And it's a tragedy. Of course. Because he, over, he overestimated what he could do. He panicked. Right. And on something fault. that he shouldn't have panicked on where, you know, unless you're going to jail forever, whatever you think is coming isn't going to be as bad as what the alternative was, which was death. I, I don't think the police did anything wrong. No. I don't think they did at all. They're placed on administrative leave. I think that's BS. Here's a whip around. What do you think it's going to cost Tempe? How oh, many millions? I hope not. How many millions? Yeah, they're going to sue. They're going to, and they're going yeah, to settle. That's what always happens. Settle. Let me ask you this. A lot of people say, well, Tempe police, should have, they should have followed him into the water. Okay. What if a guy is on the top of a building? Should we follow that guy down after he jumps, too? What if a guy says, you know what, I'm running away from the police. Here's a really stupid example. I'm running away from police. I escaped to the Phoenix Zoo, and then I jumped in with the lions. Oh, no. Now I'm in trouble. I might get eaten. Should the cops go in and save him?
Come on. No. Play a when a guy game, puts win a, a stupid prize. Right. I, I just, you, you told them you weren't going in, and maybe they're not great swimmers. Maybe they thought to themselves, if I go in the right, like maybe it's like, I'm not a strong swimmer. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go, Andy? I'm not a strong swimmer, if that's what you're asking. I have no idea. Yeah. You know, they just thought he's going to tire out and he's going to come back. Right. And then they, maybe they thought he was playing around like he wasn't really, you know, uh, in as bad a shape. Producer uh, and wise man, Steve. I think it's different if they had showed up and he was drowning. Yes. Good point. Like if he was Absolutely. already in the water when they showed up, but he wasn't. In fact, 95% of the video is them sitting there with him on the shore. I guess you can call it the shore. And then he jumps over and they say, you cannot get in the lake. You are not allowed in the lake. You're not allowed to swim in the lake. And then he goes in the lake. Then he goes so the lake. if he was already in the lake and they came upon him, that's a different story. You should do what you can to save him. Right. Right. That's a totally different story. But if he puts himself in the lake, why do they have to go after him? Well, you would think somebody... I mean, you would you want make to call, calls, you you call try, somebody, right. you try somebody, and maybe one of you tries to get out there if you have something that you can get to him with. Maybe. But uh, you're also asking the question is, I don't know, what does this guy have anything? Have we patted him down? Have we, right. done, have we gone through all of the stuff? And it's like I said at the beginning, what if, he, what if it's a trap and you're going to fight me out there? Yeah. You're already trying to get away and from me. And you're terrified, so you're going to fight anyways. Yeah. And try swimming just next time you're at home. You know, have your husband or your wife just go limp and then try to carry them across the pool and five put, or six times. Put them in stopping. officer gear, yeah. too, right? And full clothes. Right. Have you guys seen the water at Tempe Town Lake? I have. I have. I'd rather get arrested than swim <laughs> in Tempe Town Lake. So maybe that's what they said. Three police no. officers placed on administrative leave after they reportedly watched a man drown in Tempe Town Lake. Well, you can put it that way. Uh, I won't. We don't have police officers in Arizona like the ones they have in Uvalde. Our police officers care. These three cops did what they could. Every you're time gonna th- you're going to throw yourself into the water and drown yourself. I don't know what we're supposed to do. All I know is our cops will go into schools if it's getting shot up, not Uvalde. I just think the the what Steve said that was so right. We look at some things in a different way and showing up and somebody's drowning and you know, oh, that person's drowning. It's like you're not thinking it's, oh, I'm here to catch the officer. Quick, pretend you're drowning and drowned him. You, d- you don't know. And it's a shame because uh, whatever he had that was a warrant could have easily been dealt with in today's age in a much different way than this. And it's sad that some people think that they need to run. Yeah. He killed himself. He did. Absolutely. I mean, no one, no one forced him to go in the water. No the cops him to did knock that. him out and throw him in the water. No. Fox News' Randy Wimbley joins us live with more on why they believe they were discriminated against. Randy. Yeah, those officers believe that was the case because their group was predominantly African-American. Now, the general manager here insists that race was not a factor, but rather it all stemmed from a bad decision from the guy left in charge who chose to close up shop early. We walking out and I hear somebody at the bar saying we wasn't going to serve them, and everybody bust out laughing. Sergeant Myron Watkins says he and 10 other off-duty Detroit police officers were embarrassed and humiliated after they were denied service at Bar Louie in Novi. They went to the bar to hang out, but after waiting several minutes to be seated, a manager came out and told them the kitchen was closed. One of my coworkers asked, what time did the kitchen close? He didn't give us a direct answer. He pulled out his cell phone, looked at his cell phone, and said it's 926, and it closes at 930. You know, I'm walking in there, and like I said earlier, there's a sign on the door that says, kitchen stays open late. 
that I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? Especially not when the group says there were still people inside placing orders. Two of the officers asked a stranger to go in and try to get service. But he was able to sit down, had a menu, and he asked them, what's good to eat? She responded, a burger. We didn't get that treatment. Like I told them, outside of being a Detroit police officer, I'm in the military for 15 years. And when you add up between all of us that were there, we got 40 years that we just served this country between all between us. And it's like we can serve our country, but we can't come in, we can't have a burger, we can't have anything to eat. So it's kind of infuriating because it's like the same people we fighting for wanting to service for real. Officer Jonathan Gardner says it felt like Jim Crow all over again. Nine of the 11 officers are black, one Latino, the other white. We interviewed seven of them Wednesday night. The other four did not want to show their faces on camera. The group ended up going to Buffalo Wild Wings, and if there was any uncertainty about what happened, it was all crystal clear by the end of the night. Also, once we left the other restaurant, as we was walking by Bar Louie, they were serving food. And that was around 11 o'clock at night. So their kitchen didn't close. It was just closed for us. I asked the officers to raise their hands if they believed they were discriminated against, even though the customer they asked to go inside and try to get service was black. Every hand went up. I felt it as soon as we walked through the door. Like, I felt it. One single black guy is not a problem. As a group, I feel we were judged. They looked at us and they judged us as a group. This is too many black people coming into an art establishment, too, too big of a concern that they're going to cause a scene or cause ruckus. And I feel like they judged us. Because I feel like if we were a group of 11 white people, we would have had a totally different interaction. A spokesperson for Bar Louie provided a statement saying, in part, we have reached out to the group of officers to sincerely apologize for their experience and invited them back in to enjoy a chef-inspired meal and handcrafted cocktails on us. While we regret the incident occurred, we will use this opportunity to better train and educate our teams to ensure that it never happens again. There's nothing you could really give training on it it should come natural treating people like people is something that should just naturally be done all right guys that group of officers now in contact with attorney todd perkins who says that what happened here at the very least merits a conversation with corporate leadership legal action is not out of the question in this situation in the meantime those officers have no plans to take up bar louis on its offer of food and drinks on the house. The man, the man not, not, race, race class, class, genre, genre and the dilemmas, dilemmas of black manhood. Justice Department is launching an investigation into the Louisiana State Police. The Civil Rights Division is looking into the department's patterns and practices after a number of public reports accusing officers of participating in secret violence. NBC News Washington correspondent Yamish Alcindor joins us now. Yamish, good to see you. These are really serious allegations. What kind of secret violence is the DOJ looking into exactly? Well, as you just mentioned, the DOJ just moments ago announced that they are going to be looking at the Louisiana State Police. And they're saying that they're going to be looking at a pattern and practice of their sort of relationship with the community, including particularly um, there are arguments that they have been targeting black men in particular, um, turning off cameras, beating black men with flashlights um, and not wanting to put together that evidence. I want to read for you part of what Kristen Clark, who heads the Department of Justice and Civil Rights Division, said just now. 
now. She said there are reports of unwarranted force after pursuits involving the use of tasers and blows to the head. Our investigation will be thorough and comprehensive. This marks the first statewide pattern or practice investigation of a law enforcement agency. The Department of Justice has opened in more than two decades. Now, the thing that that's really important here is that this comes after the 2019 death of Ronald Green. Now, the Kristen Clark was very clear to say that this is separate apart from that. Um, but she wants people to know that this is really going to be the DOJ looking at the constitutional, the constitutionality rather of policing in Louisiana, looking at whether or not this community is being terrorized, frankly. And this also comes at the urging of black people in Louisiana. And lastly, the Louisiana head of the, the head of the Louisiana State Police, rather, he said that he would welcome an investigation like this because their own records show that something like 67 percent, um, 67 percent of times where they have used use of force, it's been against a black person. Yamish, you mentioned this was the first investigation in two decades, but there were there has been another DOJ investigation into the Louisiana State Police under this administration. Talk to us about what happened in the past and how that factors in. Well, what's happened really is that the Department of Justice has looked, has looked at Louisiana and said, how are you treating African-Americans? Are you doing something that is not right here? Um, and also, there was a, a really big AP investigation that found that dozens of cases involved officers either turning off or muting their body camera mm -hmm. and also um, beating people and not um, mm -hmm. wanting to, to own up to that. And, and of course, video um, really showing that, that what officers were saying was not right. So this is really part of a pattern um, that the Department of Justice has really undertaken, especially under the Biden administration. We've seen other investigations into Minneapolis, into Phoenix, into other cities. And we should say that Baltimore in particular, they were under a consent decree, that police department, after the death of Freddie Gray. A lot of these investigations take up to a year, I'm told by sources, and it could lead to a consent decree in Louisiana, which would mean that that police department would have to follow recommendations by the Department of Justice, and it would be closely monitored by the Department of Justice. Now, sometimes they actually park another investigator there or an official to, to watch and make sure that the changes are made after these types of investigations are completed. Yamish Alcindor, thank you so much for that. The man, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. In the weeks since the deadly shooting, we have learned details about both men's backgrounds, Chris Schur and Patrick Leoya. Target 8 investigator Susan Samples shows us. At 8.11 this morning, uh, officer initiated a traffic stop. Hey, stay in the car! Stay in the car! The final minutes before the fatal shot, dissected again and again. But what of the lives these two men led before? A 26-year-old from the Democratic Republic of Congo who spent years of his adolescence in a refugee camp fleeing violence. 31-year-old Christopher Schur grew up in West Michigan, graduated from Byron Center High School, became a record-setting collegiate pole vaulter. Just an outstanding young man. John Riley retired from GRPD in 2015, the same year Christopher Schur signed on with the department. He could go anywhere and do anything he wants in his life and just chose to be a police officer here in Grand Rapids and, and just try to make a difference with the community. Riley said Schur tried to make a difference internationally too, made multiple mission trips to Kenya, even married his high school sweetheart there. After seven years with GRPD, Schur's personnel file shows two minor reprimands, one for failing to document damage to a safe and another for backing up unsafely, striking another vehicle. But the bulk of his record reveals a dedicated and driven officer, commended 14 times for his proactive and diligent policing. 
Half of the awards stemmed from traffic stops where Schur found illegal guns in the vehicles. He didn't stop the car to kill anyone. Patrick was a human being. And Patrick life mattered. He was his parents' firstborn, the eldest son, described as warm and loving, willing to do anything for family and friends. Good heart, help. Even, even uh, if he doesn't have it, he's gonna give to you. His cousin said Leoya checked in on him often, was always the first to welcome new refugees. Leoya loved soccer, holidays, making people laugh, and teaching them to dance. I still don't believe that he's gone. Friends say Leoya worked factory jobs, delivered DoorDash, and stayed in close contact with his two young children. Patrick was a very strong boy. He was a hard-working guy. People with good hearts, they don't last long. Leoya struggled to stay out of trouble. On that April morning, there was a warrant out for his arrest on a domestic violence charge. He had prior arrests related to stolen property and drunk driving, including this traffic stop on 131 a year before he was killed. You know why I'm stopping you? You're driving 45 miles an hour and you're swerving all over the place. Leoya complied with directions. Thank you. And the trooper later drove him to jail. You guys got to sober up and then you'll be out of your way. They say that um, don't judge a book by cover. Leoya's cousin said you can't judge a person by his mistakes. And no matter what Leoya's criminal history, he did not deserve to be killed. Watch the video. Even if you can be arrested a hundred times, still they can kill you. All right, uh, this U.S. Air Force veteran will spend decades behind bars for murdering a federal security officer. The victim gunned down outside the federal building in Oakland during the George Floyd protest two summers ago. We had it for you on the air is breaking news. The family's members now speaking out. They packed the courtroom, gave impact statements too. But as crime reporter Henry Lee shows us right now, they never heard directly from the gunman who was also accused of gunning down a second law enforcement officer. 41 years, does it? seem like nearly enough time for someone to take a life. Angela Underwood Jacobs was face to face with Stephen Carrillo, the former Air Force Staff Sergeant who shot and killed her brother, Federal Security Officer Dave Pat Underwood. Federal Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers sentenced Carrillo to 41 years in federal prison. Carrillo did not make a statement. As I'm thinking about him today, I hope he feels that justice was served and that we did the best that we could have done for him. Carrillo pleaded guilty to murder and attempted murder for fatally shooting Underwood and wounding his partner outside the Oakland Federal Building during George Floyd protests in 2020. The defense has highlighted the fact that Carrillo has no criminal record. Model people and good citizens don't go through trauma and then all of a sudden decide to take multiple lives and injure others. And at the end of the day, 41 years is not enough. He needs to know that he was nothing. Underwood's niece, Trinity Jacobs, says if anything, those in the military should be above reproach. In our armed forces, we entrust them uh, to take care of us and to look after us. And if anything, we should have those people and hold them to a higher standard. Prosecutors say Carrillo had links to Boogaloo, a far-right extremist movement. The victim's brother-in-law, Michael Jacobs, says that alone far outweighs any positives. His actions were deplorable because he knowingly went after our brother in an effort to start a riot and a race war. Underwood was a family man. He was showing the next generation 
on how to be successful and how to be caring and how to be giving. We are uh, wanting to move, find, uh, find some way to move forward in all of this. Carrillo is still awaiting trial on charges he shot and killed a Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Sergeant eight days after he murdered the federal security officer in Oakland. In San Francisco, Henry Lee, KTVU, Fox 2 News. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that, we, that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. After a racist rampage at a Buffalo supermarket last month, officials said the shooter had been radicalized by extremist, racist content online. It was yet another example of the link between online extremism and mass shooters. Correspondent Ali Rogan sat down with an expert to talk about how parents can recognize the warning signs of online radicalization. As young people spend more time in virtual networks, parents and guardians are looking for ways to keep them safe. Cynthia Miller-Idris is the director of research at American University's Polarization and Extremism Research Innovation Lab. The lab created a toolkit to help caregivers spot warning signs of radicalization. Cynthia Miller-Idris, thank you so much for joining us. Extremism and racist belief systems are not new, but online platforms have certainly allowed extremists to reach more people. Why are young people, especially white boys, it seems, so susceptible? What we're seeing today, I mean, the ideas are age old. We have always seen racist beliefs, extremist fringe beliefs and violent beliefs circulating, but you used to have to kind of seek it out as a destination or sign up for a listserv. Now, wherever you spend time online, it's much more likely that those kind of hateful ideas encounter you, that you run into them wherever you are. And boys in particular spend a lot of time in sites like online gaming or meme sharing sites or sites where there happens to also be a lot of toxic and hateful content circulating, often in the form of jokes. And that can be uh, something that can open up rabbit holes to further radicalization. And how has the pandemic exacerbated these conditions? You know, we moved to a situation where millions of children and adults 
uh, started spending all of their time online, their social time, their school time. Uh, and that led to just many more opportunities to encounter this harmful content. But we also know that there was more content circulating during the pandemic. So an increase in conspiracy theories, just like we have seen increases in anti-Semitic or anti-Asian uh, hate crimes and conspiracy theories, we saw that circulating in online spaces as well. So it became a, a toxic mix in which more time online and more circulation of conspiracy theories and hateful content created a kind of tinderbox. Yeah, and I want to talk about some of the the, uh, the targets of that hateful content. I mean, we talked about how white boys sometimes are the most susceptible, but of course, there are many other uh, individuals who are a, a part of this conversation, girls, children of color. They might not be the main targets of radicalization, but they certainly have a stake in this conversation. So how do those groups fit into this? Well, there's two things. One, everyone in online is encountering some of this information and some of this hateful content at some point, sometimes as victims. So we will hear in webinars uh, with middle school students, for example, that students of color might stop going to online gaming platforms because they encounter hateful content against themselves, that they might use a different avatar or a name you know, to, to, to sort of obscure their own racial identity. Uh, so kids are being affected by this, whether they are um, you know, being drawn into hateful content as a perpetrator or, or victimized. Um, and we also see that there's lots of forms of hateful content. So there's anti-LGBTQ content out there, anti-immigrant content, anti-woman content. So uh, there are a lot of different kinds of supremacist and hateful content circulating. I want to pick up on what you just mentioned about online communities. How have those communities changed the environment that you've been tracking? Part of what a lot of older adults might not understand if they don't spend much time in these online gaming platforms is that this isn't just a game anymore. They really are communities in which uh, they have chat rooms and, and platforms where people can communicate with audio um, and, with, and with text. And how do you suggest caregivers try to help protect children against online radicalization? Well, one of the first things we advise, and we created a guide together with the Southern Poverty Law Center to advise parents and caregivers, which is free, and uh, I advise people to, to access it. Uh, you can, um, you know, first of all, just express curiosity with kids in your lives, whether that's a, a, a niece or a nephew. You know, ask them where they spend time online. Ask them to explain what a meme is. We find that's one of the best ways. Approach them as the experts who tell you how they encounter this content. How does it get shared? Where? Um, do kids share it over text chains? Do they run into it in different kinds of um, uh, spaces where they spend time online? So asking with curiosity and then trying to react not with shame, which can drive them further online, um, but, with, uh, but with more questions that can produce more information about what they already understand can open up dialogue and help build a relationship that can, that can pull them out of it rather than driving them further toward it. Cynthia Miller Idris with American University, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. The Turner Diaries it sold over half a million copies. Who do you think is buying it? Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber. Wade Page, who shut up the Sikh temple. Larry Ford, developing typhoid and cholera. William Carr with the cyanide bomb. Anthrax, ricin, botulism, C4, IEDs. I could go on like this for hours, and all of them are white supremacists. Congressional hearing tonight reveals what investigators have found about last year's attack on the Capitol. 
Thanks to hundreds of criminal cases, we already know a lot, and this is one fact. The rioters included some white supremacists. The modern white power movement has a history in this country, and we're about to hear some of that history, which includes offensive speech. Rund Abdel Fattah and Ramtin Arablouei are with the NPR History Podcast Throughline. Do you promise them your everlasting hate, contempt, and utter opposition until this country is rid of them, until America is taken back, until they are off the land or under the land? This is the voice of a man named Louis Bean. He was a Vietnam War veteran from Texas and someone who would become a leader in the white power movement. Why would you give it away to these satanic, devil-worshipping, child-molesting, homosexual, bathroom sodomites in Washington? Louis Beam served two tours as a Huey helicopter gunner in the Vietnam War, and Rodin spoke often about that experience as deeply traumatic and as kind of a, a rationale for continuing the violence of Vietnam in the United States. Kathleen Ballou is a history professor and author of the book Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. So when he returned to Texas, Louis Beam got involved in Klan activity, um, eventually affiliating his group with a national organization called the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, which was led at that time by David Duke. The post-Vietnam War years provided a launching point for a new white supremacist narrative that could unite a whole bunch of groups and activists that had not been able to get together before. These included people like Klansmen, neo-Nazis, people who followed white supremacist theological beliefs. But to be clear, this is not just about veterans who come home and do violence. And in fact, what I'm talking about is a super tiny percentage of veterans as a whole. Lewis Beam used money from a Texas State Veterans Land Board grant to buy a property and create a paramilitary training facility where he trained KKK members. And in 1983, the modernizing white power movement took things to a new level. It happened at the annual Aryan Nations World Congress in Idaho. There was a secret meeting of people. Some of the people in that room testified afterward that what they were talking about was declaring war on the federal government and moving to a strategy of revolutionary warfare with the intent of overthrowing the nation. Others in that room have disputed this, but I think we can see just from looking at what happened afterward that there is a notable change in how these groups behave after this event. The kind of violence they carry out changes and their intercoordination, um, the, the relationships and communications between groups are just exponentially higher after this meeting in 1983. They come up with two new strategies that help them both coordinate and not get caught doing it. Both of which are promoted by Lewis Beam, who's there. The first is that they adopted an idea called leaderless resistance. The idea is that one or a few white power activists can work towards a common set of goals without communication with another cell and without direct communication with movement leadership. This would allow people in the movement or people inspired by the movement to act individually without a direct chain of command a strategy designed to avoid wide-scale prosecution. In other words, if one person gets arrested, they don't want the whole movement to go down. And the second idea that came from this meeting 
is the use of early internet technology. So they create this thing called LibertyNet. And then Lewis Beam went around the country teaching people how to go on these message boards, teaching people how to go effectively online. We're in 1983-84. This is way before most people think about, you know, far-right online activism. And what we know about LibertyNet is that it included not just, you know, assassination lists and ideology and kind of like the writings of who you should hate and why, although it did include all that stuff, but it also included things like personal ads. So what we see actually is that this movement was pioneering social network activism, you know, decades before Facebook. White power groups became networked and connected in ways that they'd never been in the past. And they were increasing their capabilities to carry out violent, militaristic attacks. But it would be literature that would articulate their vision for a guerrilla war against the government. And to get there, they used this book, The Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries is a novel published in the 1970s that imagines an anti-government revolt that eventually brings down the government and starts a worldwide genocide of non-white people. This is a huge imaginative leap. So the Turner Diaries gives them this kind of roadmap for guerrilla warfare and, you know, an eventual genocide. And it's an incredibly violent distillation of movement ideology and, and ends with, like, you know, the use of atomic and chemical and biological weapons to literally kill all non-white people in the rest of the world. They want an all-white world. So with Turner Diaries in hand, white power activists are doing a whole bunch of violent activity in the 80s, ranging from obtaining a bunch of stolen military weapons and explosives and other materiel from army posts and bases, training in paramilitary camps, assassination plans, some of which are successful, some of which are not successful, smaller scale bombings and burnings and attacks on infrastructure. And Kathleen Ballou doesn't see these attacks as isolated events, but rather the building blocks of a movement, a movement that is now called the most dangerous domestic terrorist threat by the Department of Homeland Security. Throughline host Ron Abdel-Fattah and Ramtin Arab-Louis. And we have some news this week, by the way, about the program Throughline. As the creators tell the story, they were junior producers in this company. They came up with an idea. They created this podcast, which later became a radio broadcast. And this week, the show received a Peabody Award, which is one of the highest honors in broadcast journalism. Context of white supremacy. No Peabody's for gusty renegade worthless Negro from Virginia. Uh, the Cows radio program, once again, hopefully, here to offer constructive information for non-white people, victims of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, June 11, 2022. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, counter-racist suggestions to offer. Few things before we get started. Number one, reading is more important than watching television. And if anything, hopefully the cows in our 13 years on air, we have not just uh, been about the business of talking and 
saying that reading is important that is demonstrated man as many times as the Turner Diaries gets mentioned on the program and I think the synopsis that they just gave yes indeedy sci-fi the Turner Diaries nuclear technology and weaponry to get rid of the niggers non-white people Uh, but anyway as many times as we hear the Turner Diaries referenced on this program it would be a total disgrace if we had not read that in the book club if memory serves I believe that was number 3 11 years ago it was Urugu Bluest Eye the Turner Diaries and in fact white people totally (laughs) disconnected our broadcast in the middle of our book club on the Turner Diaries but it should be in the archives referenced all the time few authors could be so fortunate he's been uh, William Pierce has been deceased for many decades at this point he published that book I think a half century ago more than that it might be at this point about a half century ago and just as relevant talked about all the time anywho uh, speaking of reading being more important than watching television the cows we will be here tomorrow uh, I have been saying you know what happened in Buffalo should warrant a lot of attention a lot of discussion great opportunity to teach learn about white supremacy racism and why these events happen and will continue to happen as dictated in the Turner Diaries and other other sources uh, we are in our book club reading Absolute Madness, 1980 slaughters of black males in Buffalo and New York State at large. Uh, But tomorrow, that would be Sunday, June 12, uh, we will have on the program Dr. Sean Lay. Uh, He wrote the book, Hooded Knights on the Niagara, the Ku Klux Klan in Buffalo. How about that? Who even knew? I didn't. Not that, you know, I'm an expert on Buffalo history, but I found this book sometime within the last week. I think it had to be in preparation for Anna Blotto being a guest on the program this past week and just looking. uh, Oh, that's what it was. I can tell you what it was. I was even trying to think, like, how did you even find this book? Much less, you know, whatever. But uh, I was trying to find images for the program with Anna Blotto. We were going to talk about her. We did talk about her report. She tried to get sassy and say, you invited me here under false pretense. Didn't even discuss my report and how it relates to the assassination. Anyway, that's in the archives too. Anyway, I was looking for artwork to see uh, how to promote the event online. And I was looking for race. Or I was looking for segregation in Buffalo and I found an image. It was black people uh, protesting in the 1960s in Buffalo and they had a sign. You had to kind of look closely to see it, but it had Buffalo and in racism in Buffalo on the sign. I was going to use that one and I kept looking, kept looking and kept looking. And somehow the book uh, popped up the cover hooded nights on the Niagara, the Ku Klux Klan in Buffalo. Now I didn't use that image, but I was just like, "What? That's crazy!" Like, uh, and then I said, "What I just told you, I'm like, they should have had this book posted like online for the past three weeks, whatever it's been, four weeks at this point. Uh, like, 
hey, let's get a thorough understanding of white supremacy, racism in Buffalo, like all of it. Why don't they have a better grocery store? Why are all the black people piled up on this icky side of town, just like what we heard in Uvalde? Why is that? Why would even this happen before, like all of it? Let's get all of it so we can get a total comprehensive understanding about all of this. Nope. Anywho, the author, uh, Dr. Sean Slay, white male, should be with us tomorrow. KKK's history in Buffalo, New York. And it is kind of wild to be hearing some of the exact same names and locations and areas mentioned uh, that we are talking about in the book club for absolute madness and that are being talked about currently uh, for Peyton Gendron, domestic terrorist now charged. Um, so, yeah, again, if you live in the New York area, if you have any connection to the New York area, Buffalo, certainly. Oh, yeah, you should read this book. And in fact, if you like took a glance at Peyton Gendron's alleged manifesto, what's been attributed to him and or even did a read of some of Anna Blotto's work and references. If you read this book, oh, my, you will see exact same sentiments. Now we're talking over a 100 year span. That's what I mean, where you do your research, you can come to some very solid evidence based conclusions about what it means to be white any generation tomorrow Dr. Sean Lay 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific normal broadcast time the book club is still mandatory man I can only say wow uh, Dr. Welsing did not just uh, say that we should really be spending more time reading than watching television every day as a matter of habit that would be right in the same thought process as I've been saying if you are an attempted parent not having a television in the house that is modeled we're not going to have an 8 foot television in the house and then 2 books or no books or 10 books that are over here under the bed or something (laughs) dusty TV is sparkling, polished every day. Like, come on, come on. We can see Dylan Roof in HD, Peyton Gendron, mm, sparkling. Way more reading than watching television. Whew. Say that for so many reasons. In fact, I said this week when Anna Blotto was with us, everybody should have a research project where you are going to a university college library everybody they have way more information archival newspapers journals magazines uh, difficult to find books out of print books Uh, sometimes they'll even have like uh, dissertations and what have you that are very informative you know that are well done sometimes books are a dissertation you know someone did this dissertation you know for their senior project or for their PhD or masters or whatever and you know bang it just ended up being published as a book so they have so much information Uh, sometimes there'll be subject matters and materials that people want to research I think I gave the example uh, one of the listeners wanted to research uh, Jamaica 
and uh, hey go to the college university library they will have all kinds of material and uh because it is 2020 we're almost at 2023 halfway point right uh the tech so we've been told the technology is so extraordinary at this point a lot of books uh, i would say books if they've been published within the last decade frequently at universities you could download the entire book right there if you are on campus and or if you're a student you could just you know log in go to the library catalog and boop download the whole book or read it at your leisure online same thing with a lot of newspaper articles and what have you you can access them and you can just download them that's how I've done so much research uh, with the Joseph G. Christopher uh, case you could just go and get all kinds uh, of information but if you have offspring mandatory take your children to the college and or university library and do research it should be something it does not have to be we're going to go and you know whatever research you know just something just to say that we're doing a a fuddy old uh, research project they have all kinds of information on all kinds of subject matter yes you could research Jamaica you could research uh, building a computer Certainly, you could research counter-racism, which would encompass all of that. Healthier eating, how to control diabetes, all kinds of things. Uh, But everybody should have a research project. Man, that is one retired firefighter, Irie, anybody. You work with children on a regular basis, certainly if you have children, but you have some sort of program where you you get to work with a group of non-white children, especially children that are classified as black. Oh, yeah. If there is a major University of Miami, uh, whatever it is, LSU, Xavier, any school, college, even if it's a community college, I said that too, even a community college, because they generally will have more resources than the typical public library not always some public libraries are amazing you can take advantage of those too but man university especially if you're at a major college university library oh my goodness it is you will immediately understand oh yes white people are substantially more informed about white supremacy racism and everything else even some books that might be out of print and difficult to find. That was the one with the Atlanta child murders, Chet Detlinger's The List. They had it at the University of Washington Library. So reading is more important. No television research projects. Go to the college and university library that's near you. If it's not one in your town, field trip. I talked about that before. If it's an hour, even if it's 90 minutes away, so you only get to go there maybe once a year or twice a year or whatever it is. Or maybe you get to go more often if you travel in that direction. That just means ooh, I have a list of things to investigate. And a lot of these places, the catalog, you can just check that online and then see what material you want to look up and nab once you go there. Make it a bountiful trip if it's going to be once a year or twice a year type of thing anywho I wanted to get in really quick Uh, I shared a report doing all of this research on uh, the Georgia incident oh excuse me the Buffalo connected to Georgia the Buffalo incident in 1980 killing all these black males man I was posting articles and someone said gosh I can't wait on your book Gus and I said hmm 
I don't know, like there's so little reading. Uh, we have lots of cows listeners who have, we'll talk some, what I said before, we'll do all that. Oh, I love me some Brother Fuller. Oh, I love me some Brother Fuller. Have not read any of his material. We'll do the same thing about Dr. Welsing. Have not read nary a sentence. Or a lot. I mean, there are tons of great delectable Negro and the man not. There are tons of victims of racism who have not read any of these books. Yurugu, not like there's a shortage of books on racism. So it's not really an environment that would, you know, at least for me, be like, yes, write books. There are lots and lots of non-white people who are just eager and waiting to read and highlight and oh, eh, I guess. And there are already a number of books, at least even if we want to talk about the Buffalo situation, and I don't know anyone who has read any of them except for yours truly. Anyway, as I was reading and doing research uh, on the Buffalo killings, wow, there is so much material uh, on this time period. It is absolutely stunning. One of the stunning things that I came across, and I posted it online, this is a news report. This is from the Dayton Daily, uh, 1981, January 20, 1981, Violent Acts Against Minorities. Why? Massive article, ghoulish image, and there are lots of these, like, oh, I posted many of these different reports because they have all these ghoulish images. Sometimes they'll have, like, pictures of, like, a 13-year-old black child stretched out dead. Ah, and this one has got, like, a grim uh, reaper, you know, the image that they have for cartoons and what have you with the hatchet, like he's coming if you're about to die. And all, all these ghoulish, you know pictures and it was this for an entire year at the time that this article was published the Atlanta child murders had been ongoing for two years and unsolved the killings in Buffalo and the New York State area uh, had been unsolved for four months no suspects in either case at this point when this article was published in 1981 this is one of the stunning reports that I found and again keep in mind people don't remember these Buffalo killings from 1980, which is not ancient history. I'm not going to read the full report. Subcommittee probes new trend of violence. That was one of the things that staggered me. Subcommittee probes new trend of violence. Frustrated over their inability to bag a deer after a day-long hunting trip, two white men stalked another prey, a 22-year-old black male. The random murder in Chico, California, and scores of other killings and intimidations of blacks, Vietnamese, Hispanics, and Jews were examined in a recent Washington hearing by the, the House Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Crime. The subcommittee will also hold sessions in Buffalo, Chicago, Atlanta, and Detroit. We heard them in the audio. Cities where black groups have complained of increasing violence against minorities. There's an alarming trend of violence, said Representative John Conyers, Democrat of Michigan, the subcommittee chairman. He said the hearings would focus on charges that a conspiracy exists against minorities on how well federal law enforcement groups are countering the violence and on the dangerous climate that is making violent acts against minorities respectable. I feel like I've heard that before. Echo echo the late John Conyers he did all that work on reparations and then no count raping black male the allegations the late John Conyers continues uh, and this is many aspects stood out to me almost daily cross burnings at synagogues bombings 
racial assaults, mutilations, and murders of blacks and other minorities are reported to police. Incidents examined by the subcommittee included the following. In Atlanta, 11 black children have been found murdered in the last 16 months. Four other black children are missing and the recent discovery of the remains of two of those awaiting positive identification. In Buffalo, New York, four blacks were killed within 36 hours by a sniper described as a white male. The next week, two black taxi drivers were murdered and their hearts cut out. That's where we are in the book. Later, animal hearts were left in the locker room used by black workers at Bethlehem Steel Company and in a public library frequented by blacks. We've read about that before. Reading is more important than watching television. In Youngstown, Ohio, a 15-year-old black girl was killed by rifle fire from a pickup truck in which three white youths were cruising a black neighborhood. In Boston, go Celtics, eight black women were murdered. Rewind that one, sorry. In Boston, eight black females were murdered. Two black males were fatally stabbed by a gang of white youths. And a 15-year-old high school football player was shot down on the field and is now a quadriplegic. In Indianapolis, I've been there. Last New Year's Eve, a retarded black male who did odd jobs for a living was killed by sniper fire. Two weeks later, another black male was killed as he helped his father with a with a pest extermination job. I think that was Joseph Franklin in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Four elderly black females were shot and wounded by the Ku Klux Klan. they were acquitted that's not in the report I'm just telling you what happened at the conclusion of that in Greensboro North Carolina Klan and Nazi members recently were acquitted by an all white jury in the killing of three white men one black woman and one Hispanic demonstrator in an anti-Klan rally that's where I'll stop at there's more I posted it uh, online in multiple places for many reasons uh, but you can check this out this is January 1981 um, it would be impossible to catalog like all of the cases of violence and terrorism against black people worldwide it would be absolutely impossible even if you had you know like 15 lives I suspect it would be totally impossible to do so they said 300 for the Tulsa massacre, Black Wall Street alone. It would be totally impossible to do so. That said, I do see a counter racist value to knowing about these cases, researching these cases. Like, if I had any sort of connection to Chico, California, I would want to know all about this 22 year old who was killed after they couldn't find a deer. I would want to know all about that case. That's what I mean about going to the local library, college, university. That would be a research project if I had any sort of connection to Chico, California at all. Ditto Youngstown, Ohio. I would know every possible detail about this 15 year old black girl being shot from a pickup truck by a gang of white youth, white racist children.
ditto for Boston because they said the same thing. That's what I, I didn't even know about that. They said, man, is there some sort of racist serial killer in Boston attacking all eight black females? Two black males stabbed and a 15-year-old shot on the field? You mean like in the middle of a game on the field? If I lived in Boston, if I had any connection to Boston, I would be an expert on that case. Every time, I, I mean every article, book, video, archival footage, if I have offspring, you are going to know about this case. You are going to puke because you have heard this case mentioned so many times. So when we talk about racism, like, oh my goodness, we don't need to go about Emmett Till. We can talk about things that have happened right here, wherever that happens to be. Ditto, Indianapolis, Indiana. Sniper fight. Man, this one for Chattanooga, Tennessee. As I said, you had four elderly black females shot by the Klan and they were acquitted. Any connection to Tennessee? We know all about this case. And these uh, victims, they survived. They did a talk not too many years ago in Tennessee talking about this event and what happened at the trial and no conviction and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, all the rest of it. Like you could not in, as I said, if you had 15 lives, you could not catalog all of these different incidents, especially all over the world. However, I do think we should invest time like that is a part of, I think, counter racist studies so that we can be much more aware uh, about this problem uh, and understanding, I think, state, local, national history. I think that gives us a much better ability to talk to our children, talk to other people, period, about this problem and a better understanding of what it means to be white. The history, I mean, just so many different aspects. I could talk to you a long time about why that is important, significant. I didn't know about any of these cases except Atlanta and Buffalo and all of that back to my theory about why this Buffalo case nobody remembers this even though this was talked about all that they had a house subcommittee on this and nobody remembers this case collective traumatic based amnesia that's what I think apart and in fact the Atlanta missing and murder documentary on HBO five part series I only watched it to see if they mentioned Buffalo they do not they do mention Joseph Paul Franklin and the Klan Act some of exactly what I read in that port Klan activity and all that they do mention that so they do give do a great job with historical context but they don't mention Buffalo which is crazy because I want to say what would be a better word than crazy which is Amazing, ironic, unfortunate. I can think of many adjectives to include there because that Buffalo case is so important, mandatory in the book club right now, especially since we don't know about it. And even in that documentary, they put up a newspaper article talking about how the black mothers of these children, black children, mostly black boys who were killed and missing and all the rest of it and how they were attacked 
and accused of uh, exploiting the death of their children to, to get money and finances and all the rest of it, which is true. That did happen. They even got a lot of black people to do the accusing. They were putting up newspaper articles about this within the article that they put up you can clearly see it you don't have to do any adjusting hd like i said it's right there beneath the headline about these scandalous no count black moms oh buffalo officials come to atlanta to compare to see if the slings are the work of the same i said that yesterday like there are so many articles i stopped collecting out of exhaustion where the atlanta child murders Buffalo killings are mentioned exact same time. They're t- white people and non-white people. Many thought is the same white person or persons doing both of these killings. Many, 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 many exhaustion. I didn't stop collecting these type of reports that I read because I ran out. I just got tired of finding them. How much time? As I said, if you had 15 lives. You just don't have enough time. Book club is mandatory because I think we should know about, especially if we're going to talk about Peyton Gendron for the rest of our lives, probably if he's going to be mentioned. Oh yeah, we should have correct context. Book club is mandatory. And where did we leave off? It's not like we're reading some lame book in the book club. We left off the cab driver killings that I mentioned where the hearts were extracted. We left off Thursday witness reported that Ernest Jones black cab driver has his heart extracted in a tragic arrangement witness says huh I saw a white fella before Shorty Jones that's his nickname before Mr. Jones was killed I saw a white man who was mean mugging and all that Shorty came to visit his white girlfriend this white man hmm witness says hey you look like that guy that they're looking for that's been killing all these black guys in buffalo the witness reports the white man says yep that's me and then hours later shorty jones is dead after a confrontation he goes witnesses say he goes up to this black guy i'll blow you out man what are you doing with that white woman and then mr jones is killed and his heart extracted that's the book that we're reading we haven't even read all the black males that he kills and attempts to kill yet reading is way more especially since nobody remembers this case and we can't think of why this is relevant to Peyton Gendron chat about all that we'll see if Mr. Uh, Dr. Dr. Lay if he oh my goodness I even get in one real quick Anna Blotto white woman suspected race soldier I forgot she got an attitude about you know you didn't discuss my report how it relates to uh, picking children and all the rest of it and I asked her about Joseph G. Christopher and she didn't know anything I sent her an article that mentioned Joseph G. Christopher she had ample opportunity to read whoa white man went to Buffalo and was killing black people before wow she bragged about being a researcher she had ample chance 
to research because I sent her that report like a week before the program. Hmm. Anyway, uh, before I get to the listeners, I will get in. Let's see. We are listener supported. Counter Racist Radio Invest. If you think the program is constructive, listener supported, you can hit the blog at racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, You'll also see the links for PayPal, Cash App and Venmo. Much obliged to all the folks who have invested. Uh, The Cash App address is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows huge thanks to all the folks who have supported us for 13 plus years hopefully we have been worthy of the time and energy Uh, in fact even though I would not be sufficiently motivated to write a book thinking oh people are going to read this and this will be a bestseller or even people will read this and have a better understanding of racism none of that but man that buffalo situation that should be written about accurately counter racist perspective like that is one subject matter I think I said it earlier this week I would totally be willing they have people they get uh, financed to do research for a project like let's go to buffalo for two weeks go to the library go to the university of buffalo archival footage go talk to the black uh the folks at the uh, challenger black newspaper as much research as possible and write something accurately to put all this in a correct perspective i think that would be super important because i totally think you see dylan roof it's been close to a decade right since that happened even though it's been quick but i mean it's been almost a decade and he gets talked about all the time i suspect this incident in buffalo will be talked about for a long time that should be a part of our counter racist duties let's talk about it accurately to reveal truth I do not think you can talk about Peyton Gendron without Joseph G. Christopher all of this happened before and will continue to happen until we replace white supremacy with justice what is it that those who do not learn from history now let's see Mm -mm -mm. only quick things I'll get in Uh, one that segment about the DA being recalled in San Francisco I think that is important not that I'm you know a supporter of Mr. Bodoon I think that's how you say his name Uh, I'm not a supporter of his even though they say he's progressive and about criminal justice reform and all of that (laughs) whoopee um I think that is important because they've had so much discussion about reparations in California. We've had guests on talking about that and reports and what have you. Some of our guests said, even I myself have said, hey, they just tried to recall the governor in California. Now you've seen the district attorney recalled in San Francisco. This is the type of thing I would keep in mind whenever they get to the point of saying, "Okay, this is what the final result is going to be. This is what we're going to do. If it means black people get a check or black people get to go to UCLA for free or USC for free or whatever, whatever that they come up with. That's the sort of thing, the white mindset that you should keep in mind, whether in San Francisco saying all this, we're upset about all this crime, mad, they broke into our house and all that, all of that code negras got it keep that in mind even though Gavin Newsom I think they said that was COVID-19 
uh, that they were upset about it and what have you. But just be mad. This is the same state governor, Ronald Reagan. He's in the Atlanta child murders uh, video. Same state changed the gun laws about the Black Panther Party. Many people get confused about California for a myriad uh, of even Essie Mae Washington Williams. She said that in the book club, like, oh, my goodness, California. She got confused about Seattle, too. I mean, you know. uh, but oh, my goodness, California is just amazing. And I, now, if I was coming from South Carolina in 1960, I would probably think that California is heaven, too. So uh, let's see what else. Uh that I have to get in I guess if it's anything that I have to get in I'll talk about Sean Bickens and then we'll get to the listeners Sean Bickens is the non-white male in Tempe, Arizona uh, who died, uh, drowned enforcement officials uh, were watching There's many things I could say about that I'll be brief one, first and foremost this started with a domestic dispute as they call it between a male and a female that right there you have got to be joking. We do all this about love and what's love got to do with it and love is in the air, it's springtime and all that nonsense. You have got to be joking. This ends with sirens out front and I'm running from enforcement officers hop in a lake and drown? Come on. Like code any sort of arrangement not really anything with non-white people where it gets to the point someone thinks they need to call the enforcement officers or even a witness thinks that this has gotten volatile enough that enforcement officers need to be called it is time to go and in my view there needs to be a serious assessment like we already have enough conflict we already have enough problems do I need a non-white person in my life? Do I need to have contact with this person if it's going to result in a likelihood of enforcement officials being called? They say the greatest predictor of behavior is look at past behavior. If police have had to be called one time because we have got into it and shouted, what you call me, coon, and what you say, and whoa, whoa, maybe this is not the correct arrangement. I don't know if uh, substance was involved. Anybody was intoxicated. I don't know. They didn't give that report. I didn't get toxicology. I will hope not. But at minimum, man. There should be a. There can be no way, us hanging out. This is my care mate. We're together. We're married. Even whatever. We're homies. Whatever. It cannot be. We have disputes so bad that enforcement officers have to be called. Certainly, Mister Fuller. No fleeing. You already got to know. I got warrants, so they're looking for me or whatever it is. I am on my best behavior at all times. none of that stuff like I cannot be out here on on any sort of uh, chase down scene or what have you with enforcement officials incidentally I thought it was significant that segment from KTAR Arizona uh, radio talk radio they referenced cops 
as you've seen on cops, you know, domestic dispute, and they're like, wow, that is the frame of reference. They are all about diversity and equity on cops. I even thought that they took that off the air briefly, and then they brought it back, and neither here nor there. So he does not, no codification at all here. So we have the dispute, domestic, whatever it is, rah, 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 blah, blah. Uh, enforcement officers get called, he flees, fights, fuss, blah, 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 hops in the lake. Okay. Uh, the officers stand and watch. Now, we've had a number of listeners. I think our caller in Alabama, caller in Ohio, uh, they both mentioned, hey, they had that federal suit. Officers do not have to go into a dangerous situation. And they just mentioned it right there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, with this situation, hey, we don't have to, you know, risk ourselves to hop in uh, to save you. You know, you got warrants and then acting a fool here in this domestic situation, you know, and might not I might not be able to swim you know I'm not a lifeguard I'm an enforcement officer I lock people up I don't you know I'm <laughs> not a lifeguard they watch him drown I am very sure they are not going to be reprimanded get in trouble whatever the case it is sad you know but I don't even know what grounds the family would have to sue like man like they tried to tell him not to get in the water and he did it anyway he had a warrant he's I mean wow non-white life is not valued at all even with all of that said many things that could be done better that could be you know we could codify to try to minimize some of these problems even with all of that said if this was somebody if sean bickens if he was somebody classified as white do i think white enforcement officials would have just sat on the shore and watched him drown hmm i'm not sure I could be totally wrong. I wasn't there, but wow. If he had been classified as white, we would have done the same thing. Just said, oh, yeah, we told you not to jump in there. Not hopping in. No, sir. All this gears, I can't get my gun wet. Okay. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I can leave it there. Lots of other things I could say, but uh, I will leave it there. The metaphors. My goodness. Uh, there were a lot of metaphors mentioned in the reports. I tried to write them down uh, as best I could. Rabbit hole and tinderbox at the segment towards the end there. And uh, we had another Jim Crow. I hate that one. That should never be you. Like, it's 2022. Like, seriously. At this late date, the term Jim Crow should never be used. If we're talking about racism, white supremacy now, call it that certainly if we're talking about things that happened 1920s 1930s so you're talking about times when like black people were being lynched castrated white people walking around with your finger in their pocket and you're going to call that Jim Crow that term should never be used other than pointing out that it's incorrect we used to say that much better with words now. Uh, metaphors. They did a whole report. Buffalo, Peyton Gendron. Uh, they did a whole report. Uh, Buffalo News. Uh, it is uh, Western New York's economic resurgence depends on racial equity report fines. Now, this is from 2016 way before we got to Peyton Gendron and all that where they're talking about oh man the Negroes on the east side and man they got to go to that lame tops and do their grocery shopping uh, so this is what they write 
Uh, it's a challenge at a moment of time when the nation is torn between two conflicting visions of the future, said University of Buffalo professor Henry Lewis Taylor Jr., black male, director of the Center for Urban Studies. And in Buffalo, we are torn with our vision for the future. We will build a just city or will we build the unjust latte city, the city for the upwardly mobile white folks? That's the choice. Talking about race and institutional racism is a tricky business. Tricky business. Is there an untricky business? Business leaders sat alongside government administrators, nonprofit and religious leaders a few weeks ago trying to parse the difference between the words equity and equality between inclusion and diversity. Equality means everybody gets the same thing, explained the trainer Paula Dressel, equity refers to situational fairness. She used the example of three children of different heights trying to look over a wall to see a baseball game. The tallest kid could see the game fine. The second tallest kid needed a small box to stand on in order to see over the wall. And the shortest kid needed a much bigger box to stand on in order to see over the wall. The box represents equity, said Dressel, who is vice president of just partners incorporated now i've seen visualizations uh of this you now will they try and give some sort of talk on racism all of that is disgraceful if anything you want to put up a picture and have someone there got his box trying to look over the fence or what have you white people come grab the box beat the non-white person over the head kill him put his remains in the box bury them and then they stand on top of all that to watch the game and then after all that maybe they come in and put another fence on top of the box with the remains in it that would be the way the metaphor would look for racism because that's what we're talking about mistreatment all of that with boxes and equity and that. stop mistreating people on the basis of color that's what we're talking about all of that moving things around and all this other nonsense and latte cities and chocolate. What are you talking about? You can have whole cities that have uh, nothing but black people and you still end up with racism, white supremacy. You can have whole cities of white people, white supremacy, racism. Mistreatment is the problem. Not Jim Crow. Anywho, the metaphors, this sort of thing is rampant uh, when it's time to discuss white supremacy racism which they described as a tinderbox what are you talking about the dating app are you talking about trying to start a fire like what what words are super important individuals classified as white they overstand the importance of words non-white people we are still learning and this is one area we have lots of room for growth gusty renegade included uh, for this program if we could not use metaphors not because Gus has a dislike for metaphors but because they are imprecise they are not scientific at all when it comes to we need scientific specific detail about how to solve the problem once and for all 
If you need more time to formulate your words, that is fine, but words are very important. The number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would be super appreciated just so that we don't have to compete with a lot of uh, unnecessary background noise. Thank you kindly. Uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, that would be great. Uh, let's see. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Line should be open. Proceed. Yard. Rob in Southern California. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, uh, in the audience. Um, so <clears throat> I wanted to call in yesterday for workplace racism, but I uh, had a prior obligation. Um, so I spoke about um, me getting uh inexpensive uh, electric bike and me bringing it to the workplace and me feeling like the employees were kind of um, looking at me if that was a purchase or so it was something that I shouldn't have. Um, I found out um, why I, I found out why the employees were uh, looking at me in that manner. Um, so I've been doing the work of two people uh, every Monday. Uh, so it's the opening shift. And every opening shift, there's at least two people uh, on duty. And so for the past, let's say, six months, uh, I've been opening by myself on Monday. And so this past Monday, um, an employee came in that's not usually there on Monday. And so I asked him, I said, uh, hey, are you able to come in at 2 o'clock on Monday? And he responded by saying, I don't know. And so I asked him, did he have any prior obligations like school or anything like that? And he responded with saying that he likes to go work out and play basketball before he comes in uh, on that Monday. And I said, okay. And so after he told me that, I went to the uh, general manager. And um, so before I went to the general manager, I found out that this employee that I was talking to had been promoted to the kitchen leave. Um, and this same employee, I trained him um, when he first came to the uh, establishment. And so... When I go to the general manager and I'm talking to him, uh, I asked him why was I uh, doing leadership in in the position in a position of leadership at the job um, when you clearly had uh, 
not just one kitchen lead, but you had two kitchen leads. And so I stated to him that, you know, what the employee told me about him going to play basketball and working out. And I told him that at that point I felt um, stressed and overworked. And uh, I said that I would like to take the rest of the day off um, and, you know, just kind of regroup. And he said that was fine. And so when I come back to work on Wednesday, um, right, like right before I got off, uh, he said that he needed to talk with me. And then he stated that um, the situation that happened on that Monday, uh, he had to take it to HR and he said that it was considered as a half walk-off and said that um, I'm now considered as a unreliable employee and my shift size has been cut from five days to three days a week. Um, and so to bring it back to the purchase of the e-bike, um, You know, it's stated on this program especially that, you know, if you have, like, a new possession, um, a new purchase, anything like that, like, you know, you shouldn't bring it to the job. Uh, With this purchase, um, it helps me more efficiently um, get to and from the job. So it was almost like something that I couldn't hide. But um, I feel like, that I'm being punished for speaking up, um, for being overworked, and I feel that that punishment is to um, attack my finances um, because one can see that I'm um, not in the same financial position um, that I was in before um, at this particular job. Uh, when I went through my homelessness, uh, I used to sleep in back of the job. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you for letting me share. Man. Hmm. Neutralizing workplace racism, uh, Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Um, Hmm. We do. Uh, Robin, Southern California is absolutely correct. That's something we say on a regular basis, uh, especially workplace racism in terms of not if you get like a, a new vehicle or whatever, or if you ha- already have, like, say you have two cars, drive the less expensive, your less showier vehicle. Use that one as the one you drive to work. I'm just saying, hey, We've seen so many instances where racists retaliate. What are you doing with that car? What are you doing with that? You know, get a new outfit or jewelry or whatever. You're a Negro. You're not supposed to be bettering yourself, bettering your condition. That's not supposed to be happening under white supremacy racism. Now, I mean, I normally put this in context of vehicles and that sort of thing, gaudy jewelry. Never 
bicycle like maybe that's my uh, Pacific Northwest prejudice right they're all about biking and be green and bike like California too you know all about that so maybe that was my prejudice but I would not think like e-bike I mean as he said that's not like gaudy and show off I mean it's not car I mean uh, upgrade as he said be more efficient I can get to work right on woohoo but whoa what is this nigger doing with a who does he think he is with an e-bike what now Robin SoCal he had just told us like hey I was working and the folks told me man when you work man it just seems like you know things just go better you know the kitchen just just flows you know just a much more calm environment I said why it does that is that reflected in my pay put that down when we do my performance evaluation and said like man Rob is here we know him we have to worry about it like is taken care of like these other jokers are messing around and you know, we're confused and all that he just said like I'm doing the work of two people these folks chilling nah. like do a little working out before I come in chill get my basketball like, oh, Steph Curry man we're in California get my three on <laughs> like what you go and talk to him. You can't get a mental health. Ah, that's 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 considered a, a half. I don't even know what that is. Talk about words. That's considered a half of a walk off. Like what? If that's the case, why not say that when I went and asked? Like you could have just told me. Like, well, if you leave, it's going to be considered a half walk off. Then I could have asked. Then what does that mean? <laughs> As opposed to saying, yeah, okay, fine. And then bam, we're going to hit you all punitive and take half of your days and all that. Like, come on, come on. That sort of thing is so that's why I say on a regular basis, like all of that, you just go out and work hard and show that you're competent, efficient in what you do on the job or what have you. You can do all of that system of white supremacy does not necessarily mean that you will be rewarded. And and unfortunately, why we have to solve this problem, unfortunately, many times you can do all of that. That just means you will be subjected to even more mistreatment but I mean really to have all of this he he didn't say a Bentley he didn't say a Lamborghini he didn't even say one of those cool Teslas where they mistreat all the black workers an e-bike context of white supremacy I would definitely be updating resume and you know I know you just haven't been out in California forever but yeah because that is just super super toxic and promoting the other folks that I've trained to man I don't know is this person working doing the work of two people and everybody's like wow when he's here everything is great like man how common that we talk that's like cliche like come here and work twice as hard as everybody else and then see people that I trained get promoted above me that is racially harmonious California go warriors Uh, let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share proceed hello oh I can wait okay 
Um, a, a couple of things I thought were interesting. Um, the psilocybin part, the active ingredient in mushrooms, it said one out of four healthcare workers says life is not worth living. <sighs> that was um, a pretty large number, and I thought that was interesting. And also related to healthcare, the pulse oximeters, um, they were overestimating the oxygen in non white patients. 94% or less qualifies for treatment. That's um, a blood oxygen of 94% of less qualifies for treatment. And the report said black and Hispanic. I, I don't know why it said that. Um, it seems like it would be shorter just to say non-white. But black and Hispanic people were 29% less likely to have severe COVID identified. And it made me wonder if they test the pulse oximeters on only white people, um, because I think that's what they do with pharmaceuticals. Um, most drugs that are created, they run tests on albino mice and whatnot. So it made me wonder if that's what they did with the pulse oximeters. And that is all. Thank you for letting me speak. Much obliged, uh, uh, Irie, for your patience. Um, I'll say really quick, the medical workers, man, one, we talked about that workplace racism. You have a lot of non-white people who are doing those low-level, low-pay medical jobs. Those folks might be in that number of talking about poor quality of life and then as opposed to let's do some things to improve your quality of life better pay talk about all that less hours make the work less strenuous nah 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 let's find out what's magic in the mushrooms give you a little bit of that a little teaspoon of that to pep you up like do what why is everything so why is that the system of racism white supremacy it's got to be Somebody, as opposed to improve my quality of life don't come out and beat frying pans in the morning for me and tell me I'm essential improve my quality of life and work conditions and then maybe I'll think life is worth living mushrooms mushrooms come on uh, Irie in Louisiana yes ma'am Hello. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I went to mute and I hung up. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hmm. So I didn't get to catch what she was talking about with mushrooms. Um, but uh, it's funny what I did catch. I think this is in the right context. I figured out that um, the city I live in um, that I have so many emotions about is an unofficial pusher of vices. And I hope that's not a metaphor, but um, they socially promote vices, gambling, <laughs> um, you know, uh, what is it, uh, stripping, strip club, um, drinking excessively. And 
I've determined that, um, you know, the city in particular, especially where black people live, are the slave quarters uh, and the surrounding areas, parishes, um, are considered white, even the ones where um, not so well-to-do rich white people live, even then um, those areas are to be um, maintained with a, a, a white population. It's not all white majority. Um, and it's upsetting because people who are being abused often seek relief, right? So some people are seeking relief from these uh, lower intellect, lower uh, self uh, options. So with that said, you know, it's, I'm, I'm upset because I've tried to convey to two victims of racism, one my aunt and one a friend I went to high school with that they're making incorrect choices with food, you know, food not being medicine. And they both believe that they're doing okay. My aunt had a stroke. Um, she also survived uh, breast cancer. She had to get um, a mastectomy. Um, so she had the stroke after that. And I, I told her about going raw, and she just about, I was about to use a metaphor. Um, she was very angry at me. She was very defensive. She said she wasn't doing anything wrong. I'm quoting. And she told me that she eats about one fast food meal a, uh, a month. She has one cold drink or carbonated sweet beverage a week. She doesn't eat any pork, but she does eat beef on occasion. And she only eats chicken and fish. And she only has sweets sometimes. I don't know about the space program, literally, but it sounds like she ate all the things that could give her a stroke. My other friend has um, some um, attention problems which already, you know, the medicine he takes fluctuates with his weight. And then he told me that he had to get on some medicine that is keeping his blood glucose levels at a normal rate. But I'm like, there's a exchange happening here you don't understand. You have to you have to understand what this is doing to keep your blood sugar low if you haven't changed what you do. Um, moving on to the gentleman in California, I think you should um, contest that um, decision in writing. I think you should do so citing the dates and times of uh, the schedule that you had and name all the employers uh, or all employees that were involved. And I think you should also mention that the boss didn't tell you that that was going to be considered um, a walk-off after you asked him to take the day off from being exhausted. Mm-mm. I know. Please do not go lightly, meekly into acceptance of that. Um, but it's a suggestion, of course, with peace and love. Uh, the last thing I want to say, uh, yeah, so shout out to Dillard University where I learned how to use a computer and used to just cruise through their library um, a lot and, you know, learn a lot from there. love that place. Um, I've been in the library a lot. And I'm noticing there's a big, not a public library. I haven't been at a university library in a little bit. But um, I'm noticing that they're transitioning books to being digital, which I absolutely cannot stand because I use the computer so much for whatever reason. When I read a book, I want to read a book. 
And, you know, before too long, the library is not going to be in existence, I don't think. Like like I said before, I probably said it. How do you burn books? You overprice them. Well, how else do you burn books? You just don't make them anymore. So we need to be, my opinion, buying books like we buy seeds, like we buy ammunition, like we buy, you know, precious metal, land. It needs to be considered a high-value item, especially if it is for um, the production of justice. Thank you very much, and okay. Much obliged, Irene in Louisiana. Give out the number again really quick. Uh, 720-716-7300. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. I know many folks. Uh, she was talking about food. Unfortunately, with having some relatives with some health problems, very common. Tops grocery store. Um, Frequently, we can be kind of combative uh, in terms of people trying to give us different information about racism, different information about food. Uh, that's why, you know, I've talked about, hey, the, the times where I've seen where it works best is when the person is asking questions, when it's a lot of resistance and I'll eat McDonald's once a month and, you know, I only have one soda a month. Like, hmm. That's about what I do. I generally have a lot less uh, to say. You say you're, you know, doing the correct thing or what have you. You're not interested in changing up too much of what you eat at this point. Cooling the gang. Happens with a lot of food. That's why I say it's so important to try to get that early as possible so that it's never at Taco Bell or McDonald's. And I guess so much of that stuff is addictive um, where that's what you want, you know, at least get my once a month at Taco Bell or McDonald's or whatever. And then when you're not eating there, does that mean that you're making something similar to that at home or wherever you, you know, you're eating at when you're not going to consume that sort of food? Like real important eat, eating to live, eating to live, eating to replace white supremacy with justice. Anyway, and it's summertime like my goodness like I said that all the time like farmers markets are open man like you're in uh, Louisiana Georgia all kinds of places like farmers market like strawberries and pineapple and peaches and mangoes like this is the time watermelon and honeydew melon all that like this is the time to do it up see if you can find that yellow watermelon uh, this summer, but yeah, like getting lots of fresh fruits set outside and have, oh man, that's the way to do it. Summertime. Take advantage. Uh, let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, if you have commentary to share line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings. Uh, I heard oh, both of you. Oh, I guess he's yielding. Retired, top, uh, retired, five, retired, five, five, go first. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, that's that's for me. Yes, sir. 
Greetings, everyone. Uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, based on what I heard from the story with uh, law enforcement uh, and uh, the drownings in that case, uh, uh, from my experiences on the job that I was on, and, uh, you know, it, of course, law enforcement is uh, uh, on most of those type of calls, uh, if not all of them, uh, and they, because they have the faster vehicles, uh, they would be their first. Uh, I don't know if any law enforcement officer would jump in the water under those type of circumstances. Uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, for circumstances such as uh, uh, someone who is, enact some sort of criminal activity or some sort of domestic situation. Uh, they do not have uh, any drastic, any uh, uh, thorough training on life-saving skills uh, in the water uh, at all, uh, although they may be, you know, a law enforcement officer that can swim real well and probably had some of that before they even uh, joined uh, the uh, quote-unquote police force. Uh, but under those circumstances, I don't know of any situations, and I've been around it for, you know, quite a bit where a law enforcement officer would do that uh, for someone who was in act, in act of a criminal activity and running away from them, especially after they give what uh, I think they call a lawful order to, you know, for things and the person just ignores him and keep going. Uh, even for even a white enforcement officer, for a white person, they don't like uh, stupidity <laughs> out of a white person, especially if they have to risk their life for that person. Uh, the situation where they would basically go out of their way is for a child or children or a situation where, uh, a, uh, you know, based on an accident, uh, the, the odds of the victim's survival is very low. It's because of, you know, the time that it takes uh, to uh, suffer death on such a call is very short, very short, even before any any professional emergency situations. Most times when people are lives are saved, uh, it's, it's because of some uh, quote-unquote civilian uh, that either witnessed it themselves and had the skills to be able to uh, assist that person, uh, or it was a quick transition from someone who witnessed it and was able to get someone that was willing to risk their lives for that person. Uh, the chances where law enforcement become involved very quickly is from the standpoint they may have even witnessed a car, a car uh, uh, going into a canal or a group of people flagging them down and that's before the, the you know, the, the communication process goes through, which takes much more time. 
Um, uh, and those that's those um, that's my experiences of of it. Uh, they they the skills primarily in most places is with the fire department. Uh, for instance, down here in Miami Dade County, uh, in order to be an EMT to qualify as an EMT, you have to at least have a training with the fins, the goggles, and a uh, rescue vest that they would have on. Uh, it's optional uh, for you to become a certified scuba diver. Uh, as far as that concerned, it's for the most part, if you got to put all that stuff on, by the time you get there, the person is going to be dead anyway when you bring them up to surface. And now you're going through uh, recitation type of procedures and whatnot. And children have a better survival period than a, an adult would with something like that. Uh so hopefully I made some sense out of that to anybody who's listening. Um, uh, I was not going to attend the DCS program today uh, because of the mayor uh, inviting me to a uh, what is called a football combine uh was targeted for HBCUs at the uh main uh activity center. It's called it's named after uh one of the founders of the city of, of Miami Gardens, Betty Ferguson. Uh is a is a large center uh that's in Miami Gardens, uh that's named after her. They have a stadium and whatnot and uh it's designed for high school kids in the area uh to uh show their different skills in testing and whatnot that they do similar to the same stuff they the NFL does for people who are invited to the uh NFL combine it's basically the same things uh they do it on the level from the transition from high school to college and uh uh I went Friday and uh there was a significant amount of young black males all of them were, all of the all of the people who were there as far as players were there were black males uh and um uh they were there early they were actually there early uh as i mentioned it was for it had on the paper for HBCUs but the first college that presented themselves was a white a uh, white-dominated, uh, uh, far as uh, attendance-wise, employees-wise uh, institution that is also in Miami Gardens by the name of St. Thomas University. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, the historical black college, that's a, that's a few miles from where I'm sitting at also. They're also, but they're also. Uh, but uh, I didn't stay wrong. I, could, I couldn't take it, actually. I couldn't take it. Uh, they were saying some, some constructive things, a few constructive things, such as what to go to college for. Uh, I thought that was important and significant. That's probably why it, it went on based on the people who uh, organized it because they wanted to emphasize that. I thought it was important, but, I, but it was so much of, of football involved with it 
that's kind of like, you know, bored me from the standpoint. I might as well go to what I normally do on Saturdays. And I did uh, j- uh, change my mind and showed up to the uh, to the high school where we have our uh, DCS mentoring uh, sessions at. For me to find out that uh, there was a huge uh, event at the high school uh, that was inviting uh, young people to show up uh, because uh, Miami-Dade County itself is offering jobs of all different types, you know, in Miami-Dade County. And uh, the whole entire parking lot was full. Uh, nobody can say that young young black people are not interested in, in becoming employed uh, and want to be want to be employed and whatnot and, and start out on a quote unquote adult life. Uh, that parking lot was full of uh, cars and people. Uh, they were there, uh, and I witnessed that. Uh, the normal things that we normally do in the in the mentoring program took place also, but uh, I had a long conversation with the athletic director. Uh, that was uh, the athletic director at the high school, uh, who also attended that that the the event of the hiring uh, processes that was going on, and uh, had a you know pretty uh, constructive conversation on the matter, and. Uh, Hopefully, a lot of young people would get uh, would get uh, gain some kind of uh, 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 experience on networking and and how to uh, become gainfully employed. Uh, and uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea to uh, be employed by Miami Dade County. And that's all I have to say. Thank you for listening. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida, uh, our mail caller who uh, yielded. Much obliged for your patience, sir. Oh, yes. Good evening to everyone. Best to my fellow callers and listeners. Um, so I quote the story about the guy, the man um, drowning, and that that goes back to being codified and well, he had a white woman as a girlfriend on top of it. So that was an issue, too. But he wasn't codified when there was drama in the house and arguments and all of that to the point where police came and he ended up running from them, fussing and fighting and fleeing. Then he jumped in the water, and, and most black people can't swim, so that wasn't smart. Then on top of that, to make things worse, he expected police officers to save him when the whole system is predicated on killing black people. It was a perfect occasion to watch him to watch him drown. But he didn't understand that. That goes back to being codified. And most people that I run into were not codified on the system of white supremacy. We live in a system. Everything that we see, do in, this, in the known, known universe is, is based on white supremacy, racism against black people and everybody else. And that's how that's how the world works, for lack of a better word. And if if we don't understand how the system of white supremacy works and 
implement some type of code to live in it, it, it we're going to continue to be confused and have these issues. You know, I've 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 been having this conversation with with my associates lately, and a lot of them their issue is is money. They're like if I had a, if I just had some money, things would be better in my life, and I have to explain to them that money can't help them because they're not codified. So it's just going to be another set of problems that they're going to have, even if they have money, you know? So, yeah, that's all I could say right now. Um, thank you for listening. And I hope everybody has a productive week. It's very depressing being black sometimes, a lot of times, but let's just keep trying and working hard. Thank you. Much obliged, sir. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, she did say that uh, black people, victims of white supremacy, do not qualify for mental health. We talked about it in detail with her on the program. So absolutely try to do as best you can. All of us, Gusty included, to take care of our health, mental health. I'm sorry, sir. Um, can I say one more thing? I forgot to, to, to make a statement, a comment about the book. Oh, that's what it. What is it? Madness? Um, Absolute Absolute madness. madness. So with that book, right? <laughs> I'm not, I'm actually up to the chapter that we're like in chapter six, I think. That's when, um, yeah, basically chapter six or seven. And it seems like you said something, a comment that stuck in my head for the whole day. You said black people don't have a community or anything like that, because <laughs> there's too many informants. How can you have a community with informants? And white people really have a, a tight-knit community because they can see a crime happen, and they know everything that happened, and nobody seems to know anything. And they'll never know anything for 100 years until they want to know something and they want to make a movie about it or something like that. But it's very interesting. That's all I have to say. Thank you. absolute madness the book club is mandatory for many reasons like i never say that never say that we've had a book club for 11 years poorly attended the whole time i never say, oh you got to listen to the man in the high castle you got to listen i should have probably said it for lucky like yeah that was important maybe i should have said it some other times but even then i didn't say it malcolm x didn't say it we read asada i didn't say, we read delectable negro now i mentioned that book like every other program didn't say it then either this one manded from many that's something I wouldn't have even remembered like it's so many it's so we haven't even got to I don't know how to say good but we haven't even got to the oh my goodness in all of this that's something I would have totally forgot but I mean oh yeah they did just kind of in passing immediately solve the murder of a white man with the help of informants yes you cannot and it's words that's this program too words there are many reasons why just based on logic if you're in a system of white supremacy you don't have a community if you don't even have a grocery store much less white supremacists race soldiers ritually use your grocery store as a spot to kill black people 
you don't have a community not even close and if you want to add insult to injury you don't even remember didn't this happen before you definitely don't have a community you would at least remember dang this is the exact same thing that happened 40 years ago metaphor they call it the Mandela effect Ah, <laughs> mm, mm, mm. uh, reading is more important than watching television for many many reasons uh, other folks that we missed totally if you have a hand up uh, anybody that we missed totally may I be heard yes sir uh, thank you Gus for taking my call and greetings everyone on the line um, uh, I wanted to start off with the uh, I guess the Boston Pride Parade when I heard that, I thought of an article that I read in the L.A. Times that talked about um, gay pride in Disneyland. After a political storm, gay days returned to Disney, and LGBTQ tradition at Disney World took on new significance this year when Disney was ensnared in a heated cultural debate. And it goes on to say that about 6,000 mostly men uh Came and they paid over a hundred dollars to attend uh, this water park, and it says uh, the Bacchanal called Riptide for one night. Disney Typhoon Lagoon Water Park becomes entirely yours for the party of the year, and online ads promise uh, to be a part of the magic. So I just thought that was interesting. Um. The Ryan Air um, uh, clip, uh, they are stopping uh, South Africans from boarding if they cannot speak Afrikaner. Um, I just thought that was just so insane. It's like how we had the uh, voting uh, restriction for black people when they, uh, they'll ask you these silly questions or you couldn't vote. That's what I thought of. Um the police uh, watching um, uh, Mr. Bickings uh, drown. Um, the the podcast or the people who are talking about it, I noted that they use uh, a lot of verbiage saying uh, uh, he it was like justified that you know he drowned. I mean, they even said that you know what they couldn't go into the water because. He could have been set in a trap. One of the uh, commentators said that, and I thought that was absurd. Um, they had a lot of racist laughter in that podcast, too. Uh, I think those people probably enjoyed the fact that this now white person drowned, possibly because he was in some kind of tragic arrangements, arrangement with a white woman, I suspect. <clears throat> and I noted also... Um, and from the video that I looked at, um, the police were questioning him before he got in the water. They questioned whether he was from Japan or not. I mean, guess because he didn't look like the typical Japanese to them. Mm. Uh, the clip about the black officers in the restaurant, um, 
I guess the reporter asked them to raise your hand if you feel that you've been discriminated against. I thought that was completely, again, absurd. You're talking to grown people, quote unquote, and police officers, no less. And you want them to raise their hands like fifth graders. Um, just tacky all the way around. Um, uh, the art, the clip about Kevin Nishida, I guess a non-white Asian male in Oklahoma security guard who were uh, slain. Um, when I heard that, I, I heard he was in Oklahoma, and that made me remember about the um, article from a few years back uh, that talked about the San Francisco police and how uh, they were trading these uh, racist messages um, about uh, non-white people. I guess the a it was another non-white Asian officer who was, I guess, indicted on that or or uh, was the, the face of it. Um, he said, um, "I hate that Beaner." One text read, "But I think the nig is worse." So that was um, a CNN report from April 26, uh, 2016. Uh, the now Asian um, police officer name was uh, Jason. Yeah, Jason Lai. Um. And uh, with that, I will end my report for today. And thank you for taking my call, guys. Much obliged, sir. That is uh, the black officers in Detroit. They got several uh, mentions for Detroit, Michigan in general today. Uh, that scene that he's talking about where they had the group. And said, yes, raise your raise your hands. All of it. Because he didn't say, if you think this was racism raise your hands if you think that you've been discriminated against come on come on and and exactly these aren't just you know no count nigras these are enforcement officers and they even had <clears throat> some of the victims were like man I was in the armed services we just had veterans day and did all that pomp and circumstance and fireworks and hot dogs and our veterans and and that no count Kaepernick and all the rest of it and we can't even get a hamburger that'll kill you anyway but saying Negras that's why I say Negras is Negras education degree even uh, we had the previous caller was talking about money I said, now that conversation, that's another one I have to gauge now. Are these people receptive? Are they asking questions and that sort of thing? Um, I would ask, like, so how much money do you think you'll need for racism to never be a problem for you again? And see if they have a figure. Like, because maybe, maybe if they have a figure, if that will work we should just kill all this and we can just work on you know obtaining whatever amount that that amount of money that we need to no longer be niggers now all of that said I suspect we're not going to find a figure because Michael Jordan is a billionaire he's still a victim of racism Oprah Winfrey has been a billionaire for a long time she's still a victim of racism LeBron James is now a billionaire. He's still a victim of racism. So it would have to be like 
an astronomical amount of money to no longer have a problem with racism. So that would be one question that I would add. Do you know, like any black people, like they have enough money that racism is no longer a problem. And I would just wait to see what they said. Tiger Woods? Nope. See what they say. Other folks that we missed totally, if you have commentary. Can I be heard? Caller in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, the segment about the, uh, I think that's the non-white person or the black person that drowned. Um, they, it looked like they did go into some hyperbole or making some kind of uh, comparison to somebody jumping off of a building. Uh, I'm like, man, why didn't you even make a comparison to another like water related incident you know like I just think that was very uh, uh, racist if I could just use that term to just use language like that and then saying that I think you used the word cowardly a cowardice about the Uvalde response or the response in Uvalde like he's trying to I guess segment certain law enforcement responses or something. Um, it was, it was another segment where they were talking about the, I guess, young white males, the young white boys, and they use that term radicalized. And then, uh, I think this also gets into Gus when you mentioned about the, um, the conflation. And she started saying uh, sexism and LGBT and the other supremacists, I think. That's how she worded it. I'm like, (laughs) I never heard of, like, other supremacists. And especially when you play the audio where they were talking about, they they referenced the Turner Diaries and had a a plan to um, kill non-white people throughout the planet. Um. I don't hear any other kinds of uh, material or anything that shows that where people are being targeted in mass in that same way. That's if it's not about people not being white. Um, and uh, my my last one is where. The officers, I think, or the veterans where they were mistreated at the restaurant and the way it ended, they said, well, we apologize and we'll invite you back for food and drinks on us, I think, like on us. I'm I'm thinking that y'all going to try and spit on my food or something like that's just, that's just my mentality. I'm not going to. Um, uh go to a place like that but you know they're victims but that's just my approach to it i basically when trust the uh, race soldiers to um serve any food to me but uh that's all i have to share thanks for allowing me to speak black self-respect 
Uh, I think the person that shared that report with me, I think that was one of the first comments that I saw when I looked at this article uh, was a black female, or at least it looked like a black female. Um, she was saying, you know, there is no way in the world I would go there and put anything in my mouth. Like you have got to be out of your mind. <laughs> like, so bravo for uh, black self-respect uh, for them. Uh, and the conflict, like absolutely. I point that out on a regular basis like let's keep it we read the Turner Diaries I didn't even say that was mandatory reading uh, maybe I should have again <laughs> maybe I should have said it before now um, but the Tur <laughs> the Turner Diaries my goodness there is no you know hooting and hollering and all this about uh, you know queers and LGBTQs and all that it is about niggers and you, the exact same thing in Peyton Gendron's uh, alleged manifesto. Negras, Jew raping Negras. It's got like gratuitous scenes. Oh, we read it. It's in the book club. Uh, but yeah, all that conflation and all the rest of it. Like, come on. Like, uh, incident. I did think it was important within the second clip where they were talking about non-white people going online and seeing this. Like, I do know. Uh, black children where that has happened uh, where they would just you know go on to play whatever uh, online PS5 whatever it is and you know they you have you know your avatar or whatever and if you pick a black something that looks like a black person and then the other players see that it's oh my god look at this coon and, and all this other nigger and you know all that like what they said in the report like you might have to switch it up and get a uh, I have seen this I forgot I've seen this uh, I've literally watched black people playing and watched this happen uh, where people had to get a code for playing video games to have a white looking avatar or a non <laughs> man not woman not they had to resort to getting a non human avatar to minimize the terrorism while they were attempting to get some, you know, recreational outlet. Reading is more important than playing video games, too. Anywho, uh, we should be here uh, tomorrow. Dr. Sean Lay, the KKK in Buffalo. Who even knew? Who even thinks? Like, they'll say KKK in Georgia and Alabama. And, oh, my God, I forgot. Man, so if you... Uh, are listening live tomorrow right if it's not too late so because gusty renegade do my job i did go to the beach and lounge in my hammock i went to the beach and napped in my hammock for like an hour and a half today but when i was not napping i was reading his book because i was on my job dr lay cowbell I will have to see how the first 60 minutes or so goes to see whether or not I need to ask because I have a lot of other content to discuss so I don't have to ask him oh by the way you did write in your book that you are with a non-white person married to a non-white person that was what that was even the process because it was a blur like I think I found his information last Sunday I was prepping for the program with Anna Blotto on Monday and I ended up talking to him and seeing if he could do the program and all that 
the day before I was getting ready for a different program. So it was kind of all uh, when I got the got his book and all the rest of it. But I think I did see pictures. I guess you can sleuth. So if you have free time between now and tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Sean Lay, L-A-Y, because I think I saw pictures with him and black people. This could be his so-called family, like his wife and children all of that i think that's what i saw but like i said all this was just a blur because i was you know trying to do lots of things um but yeah so between now and then if you want to call in that is not a question that i have to ask because there's you know peyton and all the rest of it peyton gendron all the rest of it so but that yeah that is at the and that's at the beginning of the book like that's kind of his up front and center and you know writing about this repugnant I guess if I had been prepared I could have read you what he said but basically it's like you write about repugnant subject matter and you know I find the clan repugnant and you know I'm married to a woman of color and all that's like what 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific Dr. Sean Lay if you want to do your sleuthing between now and then Sean Lay, L-A-Y. Reading more important than watching television. I think they should have had this book like plastered everywhere. Not that I'm trying to boost his sales or anything, but I mean, you know, let's get an understanding of the place that we're talking about so we don't think about Buffalo as this. Because I think I did see some of that like, oh, this is the home of uh, the Niagara Movement and W.E.B. Dubois and Liberation and this was on the Underground Railroad and the Negroes went here. Not, oh man, the Klan in Buffalo? Joseph G. Christopher in Buffalo. Anyway, and even that, the Klan, that's why I said it's so beautiful because we got so many mentions of the Klan, the cross burnings and all the rest of it that was happening. The coon hunting license that was Klan literature in Buffalo in the 1980s. That's why I said it is appalling. Like, oh, it's such a disgrace that we do not remember. That's collective, traumatic, induced amnesia but coon hunting licenses were distributed in the 1980s that means that's either your lifetime definitely your parents like like they or you or both should have a memory of dang they were handing out coon hunting licenses in Buffalo way before Peyton Gendron they even said that that's in the book hunting tomorrow 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific long tradition hunting in Buffalo uh, much obliged for the folks that tuned in hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening sobriety would be best even the magic mushrooms lots of propagandizing narcotics justice how about that uh, if you are out and about in public, you should be thinking this person could be armed, may have an armed entourage. If you're not ready to die right now, kill right now, exit. If you're in a vehicle, you are sober, buckled up, not on your mobile device, uh, doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. And we need all of our attention. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient 
with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no reckless production of offspring visit your community college library and or your college university library have research projects even family research projects cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned